Yeah, that's what you do yep. when you don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. But um, but but we had a couple of uh, messages yesterday from Sumter uh, that we weren't on the air, and I think you correct me. I think we're back on the air today. Someone actually yes. sent me a te- uh, Facebook message that said, you know, kind of um, well, I mean, conspiracy theories. You know, you, you, did they take you off the air? Because they're still letting. But what did you do that Beck didn't do? Right. That they're allowing him to stay on the air, and you're not on the air. Rest assured, uh, if they don't take Beck off the air, that they're not going to take me off the air. I don't case. <laughs> I, us- I will say this because, and obviously, Rush is gone now, but but he had such a loyal, large list listenership uh, that if something did happen technically, and it does, I mean, stuff happens all the time. The, the radio station operations and transmitters. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there that that just have problems well, sometimes. A lot of it's, stations. It's, it's equipment, right. And and so, but if, if Rush Limbaugh had some interference or something was blocking the satellite or interrupting or any sort of reason, that is what people thought was happening. Thought he was finally getting censored. They finally got to somebody and they we took him off the air, which never was the case. But every time there was an interruption, the phone would ring and say, oh, what's, what's up with Rush? Uh, you didn't take him off the air, did you? So is Limbaugh the biggest radio personality ever? I mean, there's kind of a debate. And I'll tell you the two that come to mind. You ready? Mm-hmm. Limbaugh and Howard Stern. I mean, they did remote. I mean, they did different things, obviously. Right. But but Stern had an amazing presence. Still does to sure. some degree, but nothing like he did in his heyday. Um, I've read. I mean, since I got into show business, I read about Stern and some of the strategies he's employed. And he's no. I mean, he's no crazy man. I mean, he's a very very shrewd and smart business guy. Um, you end up with what a five hundred million dollar. I mean, it's roughly a hundred million dollars a year that he signed his deal with um, Satellite Radio so he wouldn't have to be censored and he could say whatever he wanted to say. But the one thing Stern said he was careful about was giving his um, audience too much of him. He believed that there was beauty and scarcity. And, you know, I was arguing with somebody, not arguing, debating, uh, eh, turned into argument, um, about Stern and Limbaugh. You know, who's the biggest radio personality ever? It's weird because I was arguing for Stern. This person was arguing for Limbaugh. They're not as conservative as I am. Um, but but I think those two, you help me here now, I yeah. think those two are probably, what Stern made a commitment to do is not try to hawk coffee mugs, you know, premium subscriptions. I mean, he felt that in the long run, yeah, you made a bunch of money. You know, ditto head and, and the coffee mugs and the club and the uh, El Rushbo. And I mean, he made, a, a, a I mean, just an unbelievable amount of money marketing and branding you know a line of products associated with you know rush limbaugh and the conservative warrior stern chose another avenue he, he was um he didn't want to be that available he didn't want to be hmm. that um uh that marketed and i just think that's kind of an interesting strategy two guys that were unbelievably transformational in the world of radio and very different in their audience approach and their style and their content you know you look at the venn diagram and you'd almost it would be very interesting to me to see where the audiences of limbaugh and stern overlapped i mean it wouldn't be a big overlap but surely there's some who listen to limbaugh you know conservatives don't hate stern i mean you know he was not a conservative nor liberal war he's a shock jock i mean he he confessed to me and somebody i mean i've read stories where the people wouldn't get out of the back of cabs i mean the meter's running and the cab driver says we're here and the, the radio would be on Stern, and this would have been in New York City, and the, the, the passenger in the cab didn't want to get out because Stern was about to say something so outlandish, they didn't want to miss hearing him being kicked off the radio. 
again. Right. You know, they, they wanted to be a part. I want to be there when Stern says whatever it is is going to get him in trouble with the with the FCC. And he knew that. I mean, he, he was kind of, kind, of a, um, kind of an evil genius when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, who's a bigger deal in radio? Uh, well, and I'm going to add a name into the mix. A, a little different because he didn't do a week a daily show. It was more of a weekly show. But you got to give Casey Kasem yeah, I'd agree. an honorable I'd agree. mention as, as far as radio, consistency, name recognition. Was Casey Kasem in spoken word radio or music radio? Music. Okay. But 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 you his voice was instantaneously right. recognizable. Right. I mean you knew it and was he's Casey known Kasem for what he did. Yeah. Which like Howard and Rush same way. Um <sighs> cutting across all genres. I'm talking about yeah. th- think of the um I'd Mike jump in here. Sure. Opie and Anthony. See, I, I wouldn't, See, I wouldn't I say heard that. Of them. They are, they're, they're, in, they're in a big they're market. They're Yankees, Mike. They're yeah. Yankees. Nah, okay. They, they didn't have 600 affiliates or a national. I mean, I, I get it. They had an influence in the Northeast, but I wouldn't. We don't I, care I, about I, the Northeast, Mike. <laughs> you don't care about us. We don't care about I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> of course I'm kidding. So, so, but you think Casey Kasem is on a level with Limbaugh if, and. If you're kind of judging it by impact um the american top 40 national recognition you know being known as the the kind of the top of what you do uh i would i would put him in that conversation okay. even though he didn't do a daily morning show like howard or a midday show like rush and it was not totally the spoken word right i mean it was a spoken word um leading into whatever the top 40 was yep. at number 39 was number 34 last week um here's reo speedwagon what here i'm with the 80s rock you know hair bands <laughs> to you wow why didn't i say reo speedwagon <laughs> when is the last time i heard an reo speedwagon song uh, i got it on my tunes i got right. several reo speedwagon songs on my tunes so limbaugh or uh, oh, i've been trying to ever since you said that i'm trying to decide but who's I, the, who is the biggest deal in the history of radio <sighs> mm. See, I was getting ready to say, well, you, you, I was not—I I was going to say not Rush because okay. he's in a political niche, you know, and, and and a lot of people hated him. But he was formidable, right? I mean, he was unbelievably effective. And stern, but he's in a niche too, yeah, because you know his style and his content and some of the crudeness of what he did is is a turnoff for a large part of the country. So they're both niche players. In but a Casey way. Kasem would have been more conformist. Oh yeah, I mean, well, it, obviously he was he, not not offensive. He garnered a certain to, um, to swagger anybody. in introducing whatever the top forty was. That's that way. My kids laugh at me when I say, you know, I didn't get to hear songs exactly when I wanted to hear songs. If a radio DJ announced that coming up in the next twenty minutes is Ario Speedwagon, I'd sit in my car because I I couldn't walk in my home and turn on my iTunes or whatever you know right. Alexa. Or Siri, play this. I mean, they, that, that, that was so foreign to me. If somebody said that's what we're going to do one day, I'd have called them a nut. Um, so if somebody on the, if a DJ, somebody like you in the old mm-hmm. days, if somebody like you had said, "Hey, in the next twenty minutes, we're going to play," you know, um, whatever, I would, I would have waited. I mean, I would have sat there like others did with Howard Stern. But, but the one I'm thinking about, Casey Kasem. Now, Saturday afternoons, the majority of people of my generation that had an interest in music. We knew where we were going to be. No, we didn't know where we'd be, but we knew what we'd be doing. We'd be listening to Casey Kasem count those top 40 down, and it was like clockwork. I mean, we just didn't miss that. But but I still go back now. So Stern's got a niche. Limbaugh's got a niche. Who's the bigger deal? 
I mean, there can't be a 1A and 1B. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say Rush. Okay. And here's of course the, you would. It, well. Because you're a Trump voter. <laughs> well, there's, <laughs> there's that. I cannot deny. <laughs> but Limbaugh was on 600 radio stations. Um, he had almost every inch of America covered with a signal that he was on. And Stern never got that that wide of a distribution. He was in big markets. Uh, certainly, you, you knew about him. He had some television appearances. But I'm going to say that, that, that Rush probably had a larger, more consistent audience across a wider, you know, the wider fruited plane, if you will. Interesting. Interesting. But you would agree they were both monumental in their particular Without crafts and trades. You know, Rush is the one, I mean, I, I don't know that I was aware how this was happening, but we had a radio in our in our truck body business that hung on a wall. We had a big building. I'm trying to think of 120 by 240. I had 260 by 120 metal buildings kind of co-joined to one another. So it would have been, you know, 120 by 240. You had a corner over here with a paint shop kind of built in it, another corner over here with a parts house or a parts department built in it, and over here was the hydraulic repair department, and over here was where you installed some of the hydraulics. And then in the other building, you know, there was um, there was uh, kind of kind of a, uh, a welding and fabricating and all these other sorts of things. So in those on on the on the campus of our family business, there were probably a half dozen radios. And we would argue about yours is too loud. Turn it down because you could hear it, you know, out. Don't, don't let it so loud it gets in my space because my space is way over here doing something else. I was the first one to turn it on to Limbaugh. I mean, I can remember walking in and, and one of my coworkers said, man, we can't listen to that all day. You know, it comes on at noon. We get back to work at 1230 and there would be a guy talking about politics. And then, the, you know, the majority of the people that I worked with, they didn't want to hear much about politics. They wanted to hear George Strait. You know, or they wanted to hear, uh, you know, Leonard Skinner or 38 Special. I'm dating myself here now. They didn't want to hear. But but all of a sudden, there was another radio way on the other end of the building that had turned it to Rush Limbaugh. And by the time I'm thinking about the six or seven or eight radios, I would say two or three were always, you know, listening to Limbaugh. Hmm. And um, so, so that is a monumental impact and effect. Um, and, and I'll tell you what it did for me, Reb. It, um... It, it taught me, my father, I mean, my father was not political, didn't declare himself a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, obviously he was a Republican, but, but he was not politically active. I mean, he's running his business. He's trying to get his head above water. He's got a lot of issues as he's trying to grow a business. Um, but when Limbaugh, when Limbaugh began to say things on the radio, I realized that my dad was not crazy because he said things um, in a more eloquent way than my father did, in a more you know entertaining way, an engaging way than my dad did, but he said things about the government that I didn't hear anywhere else. And when the only person you hear complaining about the government is your father, and it's just I mean it's redundant. I mean it's just over. You know the government is too big. The government spends too much money. The government screws with me every time I try to do this or every time I. Well, you just think as a you know as a kid that, that's your dad being angry. Your your dad's just mad. It's well, Limbaugh basically affirmed why why my father was angry, and I think that's why I eventually gravitated um, to Limbaugh because he he sounded a lot like my dad, you know, saying government can't be trusted. You got to always keep your eye on the heavy hand of government, and it kind of solidified. I mean, when you when you're young, uh, your father is your you know most dominant male influence, uh, and and obviously my dad was. And, um, but, but when your father says things and has positions that, that are, um, not celebrated in the media, 
You know, I, I read the newspaper every day for whatever stupid reason. I read the sports section first, but I eventually got to some of the some of the other things, and I watched a little bit of the news to, to try and be somewhat informed. Um, but nobody said things like my father. You know, my my dad had a worldview. Nobody affirmed my dad's worldview to me until Limbaugh, and that would have been in what 1984. Yeah, I went off yeah. to Walford in '82. You know, in '83. That didn't take long. Uh, <laughs> Somebody said, hey, you, have a hey, you mumbled a little bit yeah, when you said that quick. second sentence. You yeah. went to Wofford in 82 I and... Mean, I came back in 83. Came, um, came back in 83. Okay, summer to semester. Summer to semester. Okay, all right. Uh, Just to make sure you kind of mumbled good, that. Good didn't, time. Didn't summer to semester uh, in Spartanburg. <laughs> um, I mean, a couple other names here. Mike just uh, sent one to me here. Don Imus. You okay, know, yeah. And that, the, that's, that's... I mean, I, he, he's more known to me... Then um, who was it, Mike? Opie, Opie and, and Anthony. Yeah, Opie and Anthony. Yeah, I know Imus. Um, and Imus became somewhat of a um, ah, ah, a philanthropic figure. Remember, he had a ranch and he carried kids. kids and yeah. uh, kids who had these issues, and that kind of became. I mean, I don't want to say the radio show became secondary, but his life really the last years of his life he dedicated um. But an he, enormous he, amount of his energy and wealth to that that ranch and that issue of kids. They carried his show on MSNBC. It was the morning show for, sure did. Uh, for a long time. Sure did. Uh, somebody sent a Facebook message about Greaseman. Have you ever heard of him? Have not. Uh, there's, and there's guys that are you know regional or in local big cities that, that folks are going to know. But I, that's why I put Howard and, and Rush and Casey above everybody else because it was such a national distribution. Just about everybody listening to my voice know who Howard Stern is and know who Rush Limbaugh is. Right. If you're, if you're an American and, and grow, grown up in America, you know who these people are. And if you go to the Howard Stern listener, they'll know who Limbaugh is. Right. I, I think that's where they probably set themselves apart. The Limbaugh listener knows who Stern is, whether they listen or not. The Stern listener knows who Limbaugh is, once again, uh, whether they listen or not. 843 843- Six six one zero nine three seven. First caller of the morning is Dale in Florence. Hi, Dale. Hey guys. You know this is going to sound kind of silly. The one name I knew and I can't remember now. Who was the guy that did? And that's the rest of the story. Paul, Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey. I knew it was Paul something. He was a name that, that he was a radio guy that most everybody. And I knew him at a very young age because my mom and dad always made sure if they were home they were listening to Paul Harvey. Yep, that's um, a great one. Great one, Dale. He was—he wasn't a big political influence, but he told some really good stories. Um, that's really all I had. You guys have a good weekend. Thank you, Dale. <laughs> Appreciate that. So, so in the middle of a um, Roe v. Wade overturning, Dale's going to talk about Paul Harvey. Yeah, I just knew there was going to be a rest of the story <laughs> right. with Dale. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think Dale might have had something he wanted to say beyond that. But Friday morning. Lighthearted discussion about radio personalities. Yeah. He just left it there. So post debate edition <laughs> of Wake Up Carolina. Yeah. You had a late night. I had a later That's than right. usual night. My late night is not your late night. I'll assure you that my late night is not being in bed by nine or nine thirty. I mean that's kind of my late and not because I'm old and feeble. I'm not. But I gotta get up at four thirty in the morning and I can't hide in the office for thirty minutes and drink a cup of coffee and get my mm-hmm. wits about me. I mean, I've got to be ready to go. Now some will say well, you're not ready to go. I mean, you say you need to be ready to go at 6.05, but you obviously are not. But we had a, a very interesting debate last night. Um, I thought it was a success. I want to congratulate Rev and Stu and uh, Mike and whomever else was involved in that side of the ordeal. I don't have any idea what happened. I mean, I knew what my role and responsibility was. I did that to the best of, of my ability. We had a big crowd I want to thank our listeners, uh, you know, whomever are, is listening and 
and attended the debate. Um, it's hard to have a debate with breaks and five candidates because breaks, excuse me, um, debates to me are better when they're fluid, when, when they just kind of feed off one another. And, um, and this radio show is a little bit like that. There's sometimes I'm begging for a break. There's sometimes I don't want a break for the next two hours. Uh, you get chomping at the bit and you feel like you kind of got things in your head and you're uh, able to articulate yourself. Uh, you asked me this morning, what is my takeaway mm-hmm. of the debate? I probably got about three or four takeaways. And um, our buddy Robert Cahaley's texting me while I'm on the stage. I mean, I had my, my phone to, to keep time. I don't want to look at my watch. I mean, that's disrespectful to the candidates and the process. And remember George W. Bush. No, and George, George H. W. H. w. Bush looked at his watch. Yep. And they were like, what the hell you got to be? I mean, you're, you're president running for a, or, or you're running in a presidential debate. But remember George H.W. looked at his watch and kind of got chastised. That, that cost him, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't want to do that. Um, so I had my phone, and I couldn't see the time for Guy Healy's text. <laughs> he's watching. I mean, <laughs> right. you can imagine he's watching. That's what he does. He's a political yeah. junkie, so he's always watching. Um, and he and I will probably talk today at some point in time. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, we'll, we'll get to the takeaways here in just a second because I think there are three or four takeaways from the 7th Congressional Debate at Francis Marion University. I want to thank Francis Marion, uh, just a world-class venue. I mean, it really and truly is a uh, spectacular so building. Very, very, very impressive. Uh, MBF, uh, from what I've heard, don't know, the graphics, uh, the uh, the, the, the production elements, the production the of the uh, of the event was very yep. uh, first-rate, first-class. Um, I got to believe that you and Stu did exactly what needed to be done to make sure our end of it was first class and first rate. You were talking about some of the um, some of the miking, and I don't know anything <laughs> and then this about is, that. I'll, I'll share this because it excited me. Now, this is something that may not you know mean anything to anybody because it's subtle, but I just think it's cool. So uh, they have a really advanced sound system within the Performing Arts Center, and the the engineer who was doing the the house mix said he could he could drop some mics and basically create a stereo effect for us for radio. Since people that were listening on the radio, you know, if you're in a car or whatever, it's too, everything sounds better in stereo, okay? And this and the station uh, 95.3 broadcast in stereo. So he set us up a stereo mix. We set a stereo feedback here to the radio station. So that's that. what that means, it's going to be very subtle. And no one, unless you're really paying attention or really like this stuff, would even know. But you're going to hear the candidates through kind of both speakers but you're going to kind of feel like you're sitting in the arena because the crowd surrounds you from both sides. And, and Mike, you, you heard it back here. Can you tell the difference? You know what I'm talking about? If I, if I say that, does that mean anything to you as uh, from listening to it back here? Okay. Oh, what? Oh, Okay. All right. Yeah, I got you. Good deal. Good deal. <laughs> what an Honesty answer. is always yeah, what the best an policy. Yes and no. Uh, let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. It takes Mondays to make Fridays. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. What was that? What was that? That was, that was you getting on the audience last night for. Well, I mean, the jeers and cat calls are unnecessary. I understand the applause. I mean, I think applause is appropriate at a at a debate. I mean, you're there to support a candidate. I think that is, um, I mean, I would rather not have any applause or any interruption, um, but the jeers and catcalls, I mean, yelling traitor and uh, becoming part of the production, I don't, I, I think somebody's got to control that. I just think it's unnecessary. I think it, um, it, it inhibits us to find out, you know, uh, about where the candidates stand on some of the issues. Um, I almost said something that I thought, I, I try not to interject myself into the debate, 
It's a little bit like, uh, to me, a moderator needs to be like the good umpire at a baseball game. You don't even know he's there. Uh, the bad ones you always know there, Angel Hernandez. <laughs> I mean, we know how bad he is because he misses about 30 ball strike calls a game. Now, the good ones you don't even know are there, and I made my mind up. That was going to be fundamentally what I was going to try and do. That's hard for me. I mean, that's real hard for me because I have an opinion on China. I have an opinion on Russia. I have an opinion on the federal debt. I have an opinion on Horry County tourism, you know, and rural America. I mean, I, I wanted to, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm more comfortable opining on those than I am questioning others about uh, th those issues. But I just think the jeers and cat calls, and I nearly said, you want to debate, sign up and run for Congress. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if, if, you want, if you've got that much to say, and you believe you offer that much to the discourse, then sign up and, and become a candidate. Pay your filing fee. Be one of uh, the candidates on the stage debating. Um, I just think that's unnecessary. And I think the 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 people responsible for producing the event deserve better than that. MBF deserved better than that. Community broadcasters deserve better than that. I'm not saying the candidates deserve better than that. I mean, that's kind of the back and forth, yin and yang of politics. But when it's televised... And when there are production agencies involved, I think you owe them uh, a better shake than that because it gets real confusing. It gets very, uh, here we go, the word discombobulated. Um, I think so, you did, so, a, did a good so, job. Yeah, I, mean, I shouted that, that, that under control. And I try to make clear. I mean, I, you know, I think applause, I would rather go to a debate and not hear any single applause, um, no cat calls, no jeers. But I understand. When your candidate says something that you are inspired of or inspired by, it, it's your guy or your lady, and, and I understand that. I, mean, I think emotions need to be a part of politics, but but the cat called and jeering, I mean, I just made my mind, we're not going there. I mean, we're just going to shut that down uh, now, and I think I threatened. we got security personnel and law enforcement officers here, and we'll carry you to jail for 30 <laughs> days. Uh, you insurrectionist, you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but the, the interesting part of the debate to me was the – uh, you got five candidates. I mean, I personally believe that this is a three-horse race. I mean, I don't know that. I've not seen polling. But but from what I've gathered, it seems to me like you've got Fry and Rice, and then you've got Ken Richardson trying to become, um, I don't want to say legitimate, because I think Ken's legitimate. Anytime a single person puts half a million dollars into their campaign, uh, they become legitimate. 600. 600 okay yeah he, he said pointed that, that he out did. the other day he corrected the record uh, the media reports have been 500,000 but he says 600 uh, and take Ken at his word so I mean I expected Ken Richardson and I don't want to say he's punching up but he's punching at the guy who got the Trump endorsement so you've got Tom Bryce the incumbent you've got Russell Fry who most believe is the biggest challenger because he's got the Trump endorsement and he's a representative and he's got some degree of credibility with the voters of Horry County not so much here but the voters of Horry County and then you've got Ken Richardson, who's punching up, you know, trying to get himself into a place where he has a chance at a, uh, at a runoff. Um, so that's kind of the way I saw it. Almost two debates within one. Um, Russell's trying to make it all about he and Tom Rice. I mean, there's only one person on this stage that, that should be your alternative to Tom Rice, and that's me. And Ken Richardson is trying to figure out, um, I got to go after Fry because I need to be the last man standing along with Tom Rise. I think I'm convinced. I mean, I don't know this to be true, but I'm convinced that Tom Rice will be in a runoff. I mean, I'm 99% sure that Tom Rice will be in a runoff. How can that be? He impeached President Donald Trump. Well, two of three Republican primary voters profess to be an America Firsters. I mean, they identify as America Firsters. That means one of three aren't. 
So the one of three, do your math here real quick. That's 33.33%. 33% gets you in a runoff without question. And and if Tom Rice is the anti-Trump Republican, I'm not saying he is, but, but if the voting, if the electorate perceive him to be the anti-Trump uh, Republican, that's about 25 to 33%, somewhere in the neighborhood of that. So if you want Trump gone, if, if you don't want Trump to ever, you know, rear his head in Republican lore again, then Rice is your guy. And that's enough to get him in a runoff. Now, now the problem is this. Let's say that Fry gets the Trump endorsement and has a similar bump to uh, J.D. Vance. Fry's probably in the neighborhood of 33 as well. That means the other three candidates fight over 33% of the vote, and there's just not enough there. Now, now Richardson's convinced himself, and, and, and I guess some others, that he can leapfrog Fry because Fry has underperformed since he's received the Trump endorsement. Once again, I'm speculating. I don't know any of this. Um, Robert won't divulge any of the data with me. And, and I respect the guy who gets paid to collect data and it's proprietary. I mean, he can't, he can't let me, I mean, that, that's confidence. I mean, he's, he's getting paid to keep things off the radar. Um, I mean, I think if I had to guess, I would imagine the Myrtle Beach Chamber's done a poll. Don't know that, but I would imagine uh, the Myrtle Beach Chamber's done a poll and they've got some data in their hands, but it looks to me like that you've got rice at about 30 to 33%. You've got fry in the neighborhood of 25 to 30%. You've got Richardson, a little bit beneath that. I don't think he's far below that because he's a statewide, excuse me, a countywide elected official, his board chair in Horry County. And Horry County's got about, you know, 55, 58% of all the Republican votes in the 7th Congressional District. So that's the way I look at it. They go to the debate last night. Now, to me, the line of the debate, it's the zinger. I mean, it, you know, debates are all about zinger. The line of the debate belonged to Ken Richardson. When Richardson said, I'm not angry that I didn't get the Trump endorsement. I'm angry that Russell did. I mean, that's kind of a zinger. I mean, that that's a sound bite. Everybody in the room, I mean, I even kind of chuckled when he said that because as a former candidate, you, you kind of, you, you you know, it's clear, it's evident, it's obvious when someone kind of nails that moment. It's memorable. Yeah, and, and Richard said, I mean, you know, uh, you're no Jack Kennedy or uh, there you go again. I mean, it's not to that level because we're not talking about presidential campaigns, but at a at, at a at a debate in Florence with a, with a room full of... Um, of attendees and, and radio and television covering it, that's a zinger. I mean, that, that leaves them. Now, does it move the meter? I don't know. But it's a memorable moment. And following that, he actually said, um, Tom, I got enough money to buy yard signs, and I'm coming after you. <laughs> now, that's folksy. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, you know, it's kind of humorous. I think we had a, a fellow uh, employee here at Community came in and said, it was country, but it was very relatable. Well, I mean, Ken's a country man. You know, he, he's, and, he, and he's very relatable to those people. So I think Richardson probably helped himself a little bit. Um, I don't know that Rice helped himself. I don't know that he hurt himself. I don't know that Russell Fry hurt nor helped himself. The person that I was most impressed with was Garrett Barton. Garrett answered the question. Dr. Barton. I'm sorry, Dr. Barton answered the questions. When you asked a question about trade and immigration, he tried to give you an answer about trade and immigration. Now, that's the political novice. That's the guy who's trying to be sincere about why he wants to run here's a moderator who asked a question about trade and immigration why is somebody talking about education why is somebody talking about communism why is somebody talking about you know the federal whatever but that's just the nature of american politics it's a theatric production um everybody has these eight or ten or twelve talking points that they've got to make sure they get in 
So when you ask someone about what, when I asked Dr. Barton about China, he answered the question about China. Um, when I asked, and this is where I took some, uh, moderator, uh, privileges, I think is what I called it. When I asked the question about the federal debt, the federal debt's 130% of GDP. It's nearly $31 trillion. It is so out of balance. It's ridiculous. It's insane. We're not borrowing money. We're printing money. And if I'd had a podcast with each candidate, we'd go, we'd go a long way down this road. But, but, but Republican uh, politicians in general refuse to answer the question of what to do about Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. They just refuse to do that. So when they refused to do it in the first round, now, now that was credit. Dr. Barton said, as a physician, we've got to figure out a way to control the cost of health care. I mean, we've got to do that. Now, now when I asked uh, Representative Fry, try to look at whether they lined up, Representative Fry, I mean, he went about what Rice did, you know, with a lawsuit, the FBI. And then when I asked Tom, our Congressman Rice talked about Russell missing votes. Nobody talked at all about it. There, there was about 30 seconds of the three minutes given to federal debt. And then it was get these talking points in. And I just feel that issue is so fundamentally important to a member of Congress who will or will not choose to, to, to orderly set a budget. And I'm talking about subcommittees and committees. And Tom talks a lot about being on the ways and means. Well, those are the people who set tax law. I mean, they, they, they appropriate. There's three kind of politicians in Washington. You ready? They're Republicans, they're Democrats, and they're appropriators. And Congressman Rice is an appropriator. Well, I mean, he's at the center of what we're going to do about revenue and expenditures and liabilities and Medicare and Medicaid and, and Social Security. So I went back. I didn't go to Barton because he answered the question the first time, but I went back and tried to get them to answer a question. And I think the way I posed the question, is there a way or not to address the federal debt without fundamentally reforming Medicare Medicaid, Social Security. I can tell you the answer. No, absolutely not. There is no way to do that. Um, but when you when you say that, then seniors begin to, oh, whoa, whoa, what do you mean? I mean, are you going to mess with Social Security? Are we going to tinker with uh, Medicare? Uh, what's the problem with Medicaid? And Medicaid's not as big a deal um, in the Republican primary as Medicare and Social Security because of the number of seniors uh, who vote Republican, and the percentage of seniors who do indeed cast their ballot. But I just felt that's such an important issue because there is no other answer. I mean, the, the, the honest answer is, and everybody on that stage, uh, I think most on that stage knew that there's a one-word answer. Can we or can we not address the federal debt without fundamentally changing the model, the actuaries on Social Security and, and no, I mean, the, the answer is absolutely not. And I'm wanting so desperately for a Republican to have the courage. It may be political stupidity, but it's going to be courageous. Um, voters have to become adults and, and politicians have to speak to voters as if they are adults. So, so I really wanted to pry in there because that's kind of a moment. I mean, if you can get a Republican candidate to, to admit on the record that we're going to have to, we're going to be forced to. We have no other choice but to reform and um, and revisit the model of Social Security, the model of Medicare. And I'll tell you this, it's not Social Security as much as it is Medicaid and Medicare. Guys, health care is breaking this nation. I mean, it's creating such a financial um, moment of distress or period of distress. I mean, I've looked at some of the numbers, some of the projections. Um, Social Security is going to be insolvent, but there's a way to fix that. And it's not draconian. I mean, it's not. We got to raise. I mean, if you want to adjust some of the eligibility requirements 
based on what life expectancies are. I mean, there are a lot of ways to do that. So Social Security takes a little bit of political courage. Medicare is the monster. Medicaid is the monster. Um, We've had this debate about entitlements or not. Um, The amount of money you get out of Social Security that you pay in is not egregious. I mean, I've argued for a privatized model, but, but Medicare is. I mean, the amount of money you pay into Medicare and the amount of health care you receive, um, government-funded health care that you receive, is just completely and totally out of whack, out of balance. Uh, that that health care market is so fundamentally distorted. And I just want a Republican. And maybe this is my hang-up. This is my problem, not anybody else's. But I am so um, believing that we must sincerely have um, a debate about what to do with Medicaid and Medicare. I mean, I'll give you Social Security. I'll take that out of the equation. I mean, I think we need to raise the eligibility age. I think there's some um, some other things that could happen there, some privatizing, and I think we could make it much better. Um, I think if we could uh, secure its solvency down the road. But I'm telling you guys, Medicare and Medicaid, and this is interesting. I mean, I'll say this. Uh, I'll divulge because my daughter asked me last night, when you're talking to those candidates off the air, what are y'all talking about? The majority of conversations last night that I had with the candidates off the mic we're about, yeah, I mean, th- th- there's no question. Something has to be done about the cost of health care and the government's role in health care as we move forward. 843-661-0937. Got a couple of calls. We'll take a break. Back in just a second. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Here is Joe in Hartsville. Hi, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, Ken, I'm glad you took control of that catcalling real early because I almost turned it off and glad I didn't. Uh, the one thing I did realize if I'm going to get rid of Tom Rice, it ain't going to be with that dude that works in Columbia. If I vote for anybody, it'd be Bob, Bob Rother. Interesting. She understands, she, she understands what we're fighting, socialism and communism. You know, Republican conservative principle, she's a business owner. She understands that. But you were just talking about Social Security, and that is a very near and dear to my heart because I'm 70 years old. But they keep telling us about Social Security, and these, by law, they are put in treasury bonds, all right, special bonds for Social Security. You realize from 2000 to 2021, the Social Security Treasury bonds drew no more, less than 3.2% interest. Mm -hmm. There's over 6,000 state and public pension plans in the United States, and every one of them invests in stocks, real estates, bonds, and that's over $4.5 trillion, which is about twice as big as the Social Security program. Their average return over the last year alone was 29%. The last five years' return was 11.8%. last 10 years was 9%, 15, 7.9, and 30 years, 8.8. All right, so why, by law, is Social Security in federal treasuries? Because that the politicians can put their hands in it, and they can can get cheap money because they're only paying less than three point two percent. 
And until we change that law, and have and that's a real easy fix to the problem. You don't have to, you know, and you have to do it early. That way, at last minute, you don't have to raise the age, raise the taxes. But if you're only going to get 3.2% and inflation is running eight and a half to 15%, you got a problem. Sure, you're, you're losing money. Joe, we got to take a break. You're losing money. Well right. explained. Thank you a lot. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. Back in just a minute. <laughs> I think that is the um, kind of the line of the night, uh, Ken Richardson. And, and think about this dynamic, guys. On the stage, you've got an incumbent Congress member, you've got four challengers. You've got two who have convinced themselves they're going to be one uh, running against Rice in a runoff. So Richardson, because of the Trump endorsement, believes he's got to punch up. He'll never say, I'm punching up. He'll never say that, and he shouldn't. I will. So so Ken's punching up at Russell to kind of take some of the wind out of the sail of that Trump endorsement. Russell's trying to make this all about me and Tom. I mean, this is a two-man race. I don't know why these three people are up here. They're good, decent people. They they have value to add to the debate. But at the end of the day, you know as voters, this is all about Russell and Tom. And Richardson says, no, 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 no. Now, now Barbara Arthur's trying to carve out this, um, I don't want to call it a, um, it is an aggressive element within the party. I mean, let's be candid. She's kind of an aggressive candidate, communism and socialism and infiltrated the school systems. Um, I don't know how that well, how well that plays across the board with Republican primary voters, but there's a universe who buy that, who believe that, who prioritize um, that. And then you've got kind of a, and I think he would admit, I don't think Garrett would mind me saying this, Dr. Barton's a political novice. He's kind of, I mean, he's felt, he feels called or led uh, to do this. And, and I think last night, I mean, I, I walked up to him after the debate and I said, Doc, you're the only person that answered the questions. And I didn't expect anybody to. I mean, you really tried to fundamentally answer the questions that I asked and posed to the candidates. The takeaway, the only certainty, I mean, you asked me earlier who I think did the best. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, there was not a clear-cut winner. I don't think anybody nailed it. I think everybody kind of held their own. They had their moments. They had their their times they struggled, which is um, what you'd expect in a debate with five people in a two-hour format with commercial breaks. I mean, it's hard to get any fluidity going. But but the, the, the obvious is Donald Trump. I mean, there is no question. He's still the elephant in the room. I mean, there is no doubt about it. Um, as a moderator, you got to get there quick. I mean, you got to put that on the table to begin with. That's why when I thank Eric from WMBF for handing it off to me, my Congressman Rice, on January 13, uh, 2021, you voted to impeach President Donald Trump on um, in, basically for insurrection, articles of insurrection, articles for insurrection. Um, why do you believe this was the proper vote? And then to the other candidates, um, all of you have publicly condemned Congressman Rice's vote. Um, what do you base your condemnation on? I mean, that's the elephant in the room. We're not having a debate if, if, if Rice doesn't vote in January of 2021 to impeach Trump. So who won the debate? Uh, you tell me. Who didn't do as well as you thought they would? You tell me. But but I can tell you, in that room, Donald Trump is the 800-pound gorilla. And second ain't close, as far as I'm concerned. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jamie. Morning, sir. Good morning, fellas. Um, Y'all really did a good job last night. Um, you know, I'm kind of simple. And uh, I've got to tell you, um, Barbara Arthur, she's got she's got passion. And I think she's... She's got a uh, a future, um, but her passion 
is more American first. And I know she was a um, she had a, she had one one song page she was singing off of, but her passion is so strong. I think that passion would lead her to do more of what Donald Trump wants to do than than these other fellows. I think she is so dedicated to America, and I was impressed. I don't know if anybody else was, but I was impressed. And again, I know she had one one song page that she was singing off of, but from that base, I think she would always make the right decisions. And I just think she has a future. Thank you, thank you, Jam. Appreciate that interesting observation there. You know, I I equate Barbara Arthur last night. I went to several presidential debates when I was lieutenant governor or running for. Nah, nah let me think about it. Is it twenty? Uh, yeah, when I was, I'm trying. Yeah, in 2011, I went to some debates up leading up to the 2012 presidential election. Um, and I think that's the election. Now, nah, this would have been in 08 when Rand Paul, when Ron Paul, not Rand, when Ron Paul ran for president. He was a he was perceived to be somewhat of a one trick pony, and it was about the Fed, you know, and um, borrowing money and the debt, and it was kind of a. But he had a loyal following, and he had a universe of support that was unbelievably intense. It was not large. I mean, it was not a high percentage of the Republican voters. But when I listened to Arthur last night and I heard the reaction from her from her faithful, it reminded me a little bit of the Ron Paul being at the debate. If you were at the debate, you think Ron Paul was polling at 60% because his, his followers, his, his, his legion, of arm, uh, legion of supporters were very, very vocal. And some of that came to play last night. Um, it's kind of an interesting observation uh, from Jam. Let's take a call. Somebody's there. Next is Verd. Hey, Verd. Good morning. Ken. Hey, Verd. Great job last night. Uh uh, getting a handle on the debate to start off with, I think you set the tone for it before it got out of hand, and uh, that was a, a very good job. Uh, the last night's debate, I think all the candidates did very well. Uh, it's probably the first debate I think I've ever seen that at least one candidate did, didn't get caught with a gotcha question, and nobody walked out of there with, uh, man, I messed that question up. But I think all the candidates did very well. I think Russell Fry did do very well. I think he did what he needed to do. But like you said, Ken, the elephant in the room is Donald Trump. Uh, three and a half weeks ago, uh, J.D. Vance was in third place in the Ohio Senate District. And with Donald Trump's endorsement three weeks ago, he not only won last Tuesday, he won by 8% and over 100,000 votes. Donald Trump has about an 85 to 88% approval rating in the 7th District, and that equates into more than what J.D. Vance uh reaped off of Donald Trump in Ohio. So I, I think in the end of the game, it's, it's uh, Donald Trump's uh, not going to be on the ballot on June 14th, but there's a lot of people going to be voting for his person. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate that. And Verd is boots on the ground. I mean, he's, he's kind of, you know, the the grind of politics. Verd is very involved in. Uh, and I want to say this. Um, he's right about J.D. Vance. Will, will Trump come to Horry County and, you know, he came to Florence County and he hosted this big event. Um, do we get to a place in the next month or so that Trump comes back to the 7th Congressional District on behalf of Russell Fry? Does Trump invest Save America PAC money? The Political Action Committee, not the Performing Arts Center, the Political Action Committee <laughs> does like to Save America make an investment in the 7th Congressional District. I don't have the answer to that. Don't know. I don't have any idea what Save America's uh, plan is. I don't know what Trump's plans are. 
but but when Trump came or, or went to Ohio to endorse J.D. Vance, now once again, a Senate seat from Ohio is different than a congressional seat in South Carolina. We got two senators and seven congressmen. I mean, it's a little more exclusive. I'm sorry, it just is. Tim Scott and Lindsey Graham are our senators. We've got seven members of Congress. Um, J.D. Vance, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a national election. It's not because everybody in America doesn't vote for it, but it's a very nationally polarizing election. And I, I'll tell you, it's, it's interesting to see what J.D. Vance had to say. I don't know if you saw this or not, but J.D. Vance called Karl Rove a slime ball. Wow. Yep. A slime ball that got rich shipping jobs to China and um, sending other people's children off to fight ridiculous presidential wars. I mean, J.D. Vance got very, 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 I mean, just animated and aggressive toward the establishment. And, um, and I mean, once again, nobody's asking me for advice, but, but I think about this. I mean, when I kind of thought through the questions, uh, I'm putting myself in the role as a candidate. In other words, what sorts of questions would demand some sort of you know, critical thinking on my, on my, I mean, I knew nobody is surprised. Ver's not, I'm not, you're not, nobody is that no matter what the question is, that there's a way to get your talking points. Nobody asked Ken Richardson what he thought of the Trump endorsement. We did ask, and I did this, somebody, you know, I gave the candidates the categories, but, but there was one spontaneous question. If there's a runoff that involves, uh, if there's a runoff that does not involve you, who are you most likely to support? That was so great when you asked that well, question. But but it catches them a bit off yeah. guard. And and Richardson refused to answer the question. Uh, Barbara Arthur refused to answer the question. Garrett Barton refused to answer the question. Uh, Russell Fry said anybody but Tom Rice. Tom Rice basically said anybody but Russell Fry in a little bit different way. And um, and I think what you're trying to do, or what I was trying to do, is find out. You know, I mean, I, let's be let's be candid and honest. I mean, we're family here. I'm trying to find out where Richardson is. I mean, it's obvious that Richardson is going after Russell. So, so if Russell ends up in a runoff with Rice, is Richardson going to support Russell or not? Not that endorsements matter. I mean, this isn't the Trump endorsement. But but if a guy has, you know, a, a certain percentage of loyalty in that district, let's say that, uh, I, I'm just speculating here, let's say that Richardson gets, you know, 19% of the vote. And he asks his 19% to go, you know, support Russell Fry. Let's say Russell Fry has 19% of the vote and Fry, you know, request of his voters, urges, you know, his voters to go vote for, you know, the, um, the guy that didn't vote to impeach Donald Trump. That's what I wanted to get at. And, um, and the only thing I got was, you know, Russell saying anybody but Rice, Rice saying anybody uh, than Russell. But Richardson was the intent of that question. I mean, if, he, if he's the third leg on the stool and he ends up with a, a big enough percentage of support to matter, and once again, I'm speculating. I mean, I could be as, I could be as wrong as anything. We've got a ways to go in this election. Um, you know, it could be, J.M. talked about, you know, Barbara Arthur. I mean, crazy things happen in politics. Let's go to the phone. That, that, by the way, that question you asked, um, when you asked it, I, I, I was up in the booth, so I wasn't in the crowd, but it sounded like the crowd reacted to the question. They were like, ooh, good one. Yeah, well, that, you know, and I, I didn't go there to, to, to do a gotcha debate. I mean, it's not, look, guys, there's a thousand questions I could have asked, and they would have given you every, I mean, what do you think of critical race theory? Let, let me let, let me give you, I, I think of this. So, so uh, hey, um, candidates, what do you think of critical race theory? I don't like it. What do you think of transgenderism? Don't like it. What do you think of gender fluidity? Don't like it. Uh, what do you think about what Ron DeSantis did to Disney in Florida? I love it. I mean, that, that's so, I mean, to me, we don't get anywhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're softballs. 
I mean, they're, they're, they're a ball sitting on a tee about, you know, knee high. If you can't hit that, you can't hit anything. I want to see some thinking. I mean, I think it's different. When you ask somebody to vote for you to go to Congress and be one of 435 that basically dictate America's political direction and, and, and you know, future, I want, some, I want some critical thinking. I mean, I want a little meat on the bone. I want to hear somebody answer a question substantively and, and with some degree of understanding. Uh, we got a little bit of that last night, not as much as I was hoping for, um, but but you got a lot of novices up there. I mean, you got Barbara Arthur. She's plenty smart, but she's not in, in the belly of, uh, of American politics. Garrett Barton feels like he's led or called. Russell's at the state house. Tom's the only guy that has, you know, a depth of understanding because he's a 10-year member of Congress. And then you've got Ken Richardson, who's a business guy and a chairman of the uh, Horry County School Board. I mean, they all have a degree of understanding, but I think when you accept uh, the role as a candidate for U.S. Congress, you got to go to work and study. You got to understand. I mean, this would have been if I wanted to be uh, kind of a troublemaking moderator. You know what I would have asked? What year did China join the World Trade Organization? Uh, maybe two would have known that. I mean, I'm moderating the debate, and I know it. Now I host a radio show that requires me to kind of dig into these things. But um, yeah, I, I'm not there to embarrass anybody. So instead, I say, hey, in 2001, China joined the World Trade Organization. Tom, Tom went into some of the backstory. The Clinton administration really urged uh, American leadership to allow China to become a member because they thought it would legitimize China and China would accept that legitimacy and become more accommodating to the Western world. Well, we were wrong. I mean, there's a 21-year track record now. We were completely and totally wrong. In fact, it has probably led more, more than anything, even more than NAFTA. China being legitimized as a member of the World Trade Organization has probably led to more deindustrializing of the American economy than even NAFTA. Now, now, if I were a candidate, that would have been my answer. I mean, I would have gone into some degree of specificity because you as a voter deserve that degree of specificity because I want to be a member of Congress. Let's go to the phone. John and Lamar. Hi, John. Hey, good morning, guys. Can you hear me all right? Yes, sir. Yep. All right, look, um, I got cut off a while ago. I lost signal. Um, but uh, when Joe was on a while ago, I pretty much agreed with him a lot. And, Ken, I think you did an awesome job last night. I live-streamed it over to, uh, on my computer, you know, watched it all. And as an American firster, Barbara Arthur solidified my vote last night. Um, all the rest of you guys are career politicians, and, and you know, I, I don't think I, I don't think I think it's time for a change in in, in Washington. And I, she she really solidified my vote last night. But the, uh, the other thing I called about was I don't know how, as a politician, y'all keep coming up with Medicare and Medicaid ruining everything. You know, Medicare. Is something that people pay into, same as for Social Security. You know, it's the government's fault that the money's not there for that. But when you take the money away from that and, and, and put it to Medicaid, and, or, I mean, uh, med yeah, Medicaid and, and uh, welfare and all that other stuff, that, that's, where, that's where your money's going. I mean, you know, they keep borrowing money from our Social Security that we paid into to, to fund those projects. And, and, and you know, it's just not the same thing, and, and nobody brings that stuff up about all the free stuff that they're giving out. When I stand in line at the grocery store and people in front of me are buying better food than I'm buying, you know, and not paying for it than I'm paying for. 
You know, it doesn't make any sense. Medicare, you know, when when I go to the doctor and I use my Medicare card and somebody behind me uses a Medicaid card, why well, pay for them too? You know, it, and it doesn't make any sense that we're we're in debt and everybody's blaming Social Security and Medicare. You know, let let's put the blame where where it's supposed to be. You know, and 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 not on the people that work hard all their life and paid into it and 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 have got as as supposed to be getting it. It doesn't make any sense that, that everybody blames them. You know, I mean, that's just like blaming somebody going out here going to work and giving somebody twenty dollars to, 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 to go get a bottle of liquor. You know, I mean, it's not it's not our fault. You know, I mean, hell, we're working for our money. You know, and and I'm just you know every time you get on that subject, it upsets me. But just today, I just wanted to call in and let you know that I thought you did a good job at at, at up there last night, and as an American firster. Barbara Officer Slurred by So have a good day, guys. Thank you, John. Appreciate that, my man. Um, I still disagree on Medicare. I mean, I'll give you the Social Security, and I said it earlier. I think we can address Social Security if we've got a serious bone in our body. But when you look at the Social Security tax, 6.2% of, of all your income, not all your income, $135,000. I think the first, it might be 140 ish. Uh, anyway, there, there's, a, there's a threshold we cross where the tax doesn't apply. But the first $140,000 you earn, uh, I'm close, you know. Somebody will call me in a second, tell me if I'm wrong. But um, but the the the, the six point two percent for the um, for the employee, six point two percent for the employer. So you're at about twelve point four percent. The Medicare um, tax is one point uh, one point four five percent. So you're looking at less than three percent. So you know what we pay in Social Security is a uh, it's over it's what three times what we pay in Medicare and Medicare and Social Security. Uh, Medicare will probably cost the federal government a trillion dollars by next year. But I think last year it was 879 or 89 billion dollars. So Medicare is going to cost the government about a trillion dollars. We're not taking in anywhere near a trillion dollars because the Medicare tax is only 1.45%. The employer's match makes it, what, 2.9%. You've got the 6.2% Social Security match uh, in employer and employee. So you got 12.4% funding Social Security, you've got less than 3%, 2.9% funding Medicare, and Medicare costs are about a trillion dollars a year. Medicare is a big problem. I would argue that of the three, here I go with a word people don't like, but they're categorized as entitlement programs. I get the fact that you pay in. I certainly understand uh, you pay into Medicare, you pay into Social Security, but of the three there were not mine entitlement programs. The most troubling of the three is Medicare because of the enormous increase in the cost of health care. And, and once again, Medicare spending by next year will probably cross $1 trillion. And the taxes generated, the 1.45% that you pay as an employee and your employer matches is just not keeping up. I mean, it's nowhere close to keeping up. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a minute. Once I got out of algebra, I knew I was over my head in math, but I can still add and subtract. And two point, I mean, we spent about $2.03 trillion on Medicare and Social Security. So stick with me, folks in Pamplico. If you're taxing at 6.2%, everybody's income up to $140,000. Your employer's matching that. You're going to generate a lot more revenue than if you're taxing 1.45%, then your employer's matching that 1.45. That's the critical imbalance. And that's really the question. But I mean, if you want to get in the weeds and have a serious debate 
uh, of, of a U.S. congressman. I mean, those are the sorts of answers um, that, that the public needs to better understand, fundamentally understand. And um, that's when I'm chomping to the bit. That's when I wish I was not moderating, <laughs> but rather in the debate. Uh, I like debating better than refereeing. But, but if the question comes to me about fundamentally changing Social Security and Medicare and somebody says on a, on a list of priorities, what should the government be most concerned about? To me, it's Medicare. I think Medicare, Medicare is a bigger driver of the debt than Social Security. Once again, I think there need to be fundamental changes to both programs. I think the retirement age is too low because life expectancy has really, really, really increased in the past 25 or 30 years. So if you tell people under the age of 50 that you're going to have to work three or four years longer, that's not a deal breaker. But if we don't do some of this, Social Security will be insolvent in about eight, nine, 10 years. But Medicare, John, I'm sorry, Medicare is still the biggest driver of the federal debt. And, and, and we've got to address that. I mean, we have to fundamentally address health care in America and how much of our economy it consumes. Uh, let's go to the phone. Here is Josh in Florence. Morning, Josh. Morning. How are you all today? Hey, Josh. I uh, was in the crowd last night, and I was noticing that, you know, I, just, I walked in there thinking I could vote for anybody on the stage, maybe the only person in the district that can say that. I don't know. But I think that I was just looking for some substance. And like you said, I understand that there's some political novices, and, and they don't have, like, all the talking points that they would want to have, but they certainly had the talking points that Fox News has and conservative talk radio, as much as I love it, it just wasn't what I was looking for. And I'll tell you, you think that, you know, is there, was there a winner last night? I definitely think that pretty much four out of the five people won. But there's one big loser, and I think that's Russell Fry. I think he got raked over the coals by Tim at the end there. And I think Tom Rice had a pretty legitimate answer to the impeachment thing. I think it was a stupid vote, but I understand he was there in the moment, and I think he... uh was the only real guy out there that had some, some numbers, some stats behind it. Maybe that's because of his tenure, but I'm just tired of our Congress people being the ones who are kind of looked down on, and we have to rely on the senators for actually legislating. And I think uh, I'm just tired of this cold of personality of Trump. I mean, I could vote for DeSantis yesterday. And so hearing that was a little bit discouraging that we're just stuck in the past as a party, and we're not going to move forward in 2022 or 2024. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that interesting observation there. Um, 843-661-0937. I will say this. um, I've talked to 10 or 12 people this morning texting, uh, people that I trust, people that, you know, understand politics. Uh, What did you think? Uh, Kind of a draw. Nobody really made a lasting impression. Uh, Every candidate had their moment. Every candidate had a, a time or period of time that they looked, they struggled. Look, if you're in that room last night and you're trying to defend a vote to impeach Donald Trump, you ain't gonna sell it. I mean, that, that may sell in some circles, but that's not going to sell last night in the Performing Arts Center. And that's still the, the force and factor in this race. It's still about, I mean, this race is as simple as this, guys. You ready? I mean, we got a, we got a campaign we're going to run, and, and we hope they advertise on the radio, especially our show. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, this race is, is about one thing. Can a member of Congress in a red district in South Carolina get reelected after impeaching President Donald Trump? I mean, that's fundamentally the issue in this campaign. We'll talk about China. We'll talk about trade. We'll talk about Russia. We'll talk about taxes, Medicare, Social Security. But at the end of the day, can an incumbent member of Congress vote to impeach a highly popular American president, not all over the country, 
But in this district, I've seen the numbers. Trump's approvals are still in the mid to upper 80s with Republican primary voters. That's where we are. And, you know, you, you can find Russell Fry. You can find uh, Barbara Arthur. I mean, there are a lot of places people will get off. But at some point in time, you're going to have to make your mind up whether you're going to vote for Tom Rice or somebody else. I mean, that's where we're going to end up. We're going to end up in a runoff with Tom Rice and somebody else. And the voters of this district are going to find out whether they're willing to vote for Russell Fryer, Ken Richardson, or Dr. Garrett Burton, or, or uh, Barbara Arthur. It's going to be somebody and Tom Rice, and that's the call the voters in this district are going to have to make. Let's go to the phone, then I'm going to get to Buddy Brand. Rujan. Good morning, Rujan. Good morning, gentlemen. I hope you're having a great day. Excellent job last night, Ken. Uh, I like I like that, uh, that, well, it could have been a gotcha question, but uh, nobody really, really answered it. Um, but uh, the more I listen to Ken Richardson, man, the more he reminds me of Ross Perot. I mean, just as it is with, with his voice and everything, if you're listening to him over the, uh, over the airwaves, that's who he sounds like. I mean, you know, uh, hopefully, well, I don't know if he's going to be the sporter like Perot was for, uh, George Herbert Walker, but, uh, but we'll, we'll see. Um, what I'm looking at is you got two politicians, uh, two, two individuals that are seasoned, politicians going against three novices. I mean, I, I put Richardson in that category because, you know, he's, he's, he's not uh, been in office that long. And Arthur and Barton, they've, they've uh, from what I can understand, they've never held office. So at this point, uh, I'm going to say it's going to be Rice. And like you said, Rice is going to be between, uh, you know, Fry and Richardson. I mean, yeah, and, and you might have Barbara, you know, kind of sneak in there on the coattails, but but uh, I don't know, Ken. It might just be might be a three way runoff. Who knows? You can't never tell. But uh, you know, it's going to be very very interesting. But again, did a good job. You guys, the station did a good job, and the sponsor did a good job, and uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Rujan. Appreciate that. I think it's a good night for Florence. I mean, I really do. I was thinking about that. Fifty. I mean, fifty two to fifty six percent of the vote resides in Horry County. And I said last night, it's the fastest growing county in South Carolina, one of the fastest growing counties in America. But the first debate in this um, hotly contested primary was in Florence. And I think Francis Marion University, the Performing Arts Center, are to be congratulated. I think you, Royal Rev of Radio, mm. and the hard work you did behind Thank the you. scenes to make sure the production quality. Well, I mean, in WMBF, I mean, it was, to me, it's a good night for Florence to have a debate of that, uh, of that consequence and magnitude. And uh, we know this. There was some national media. Uh, following what was happening there. Because once again, guys, there's only nine or 10 Republicans in Congress that voted to impeach Donald Trump. And, you know, Wyoming and Liz Cheney, Tom Rice in South Carolina, this is a local election, but it's a national election. I mean, it's still about Donald Trump. And and once again, my takeaway, it's still about Trump. I mean, <laughs> the, the energy in that room is pro and con Donald Trump. Uh, overwhelming majority, pro Donald Trump. That's the political reality. And I don't understand. I'll talk about establishment politicians for a second. I understand the fact that you don't like it. I mean, I get it. The Mitch McConnell's of the world, the Mitt Romney's of the world, the Bushes. I understand you don't like it. I mean, I, I get that. But, but at some point in time, you've got to accept that this is where we are and we ain't going back. Now, I don't know where we go from here. I don't think Trump's the 20 year answer to the Republican Party's future, but we're not going back to where we were. The J.D. Vance's of the world, 
the Ron DeSantis of the world, the Peter Thiels of the world, these are going to be the leaders of this America First movement moving forward, and you can resist it until you're miserable. Now, McConnell can retire and go home. You know, so he's kind of, I mean, I would imagine he's had several conversations with confidants. I don't want to be in the middle of this. I'm going home. Romney can go home. But if you're a younger politician and, and you're committed to this establishment, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, I don't want to call it elitist, but an establishment status quo uh, perspective, I, I, I just think you've got a, you've got a hard road to, to plow. I mean, th- th- this is, we're not going to stay there. It's obvious to me now that Trump has not just a blip on the radar, but there's been a fundamental repositioning of where the party sees uh, as its future. So, and what you used to refer to as base camp one, right? I mean, yeah, I, I, proof, I've said it for a couple of years, you know, that there are a lot of friends of mine who believe this is a brush fire. This is kind of a one-off, a fit and a rage. You know, the, the party got mad. They got it out of their system. No, I think this is a fundamental reshaping of the of one of the major political parties in America. I don't think it'll be in Trump's image. I mean, I think 10 years from now, there'll obviously be the fingerprints of Trump all over this. But I think the J.D. Vance's, the Ron DeSantis's, the Josh Hawley's, the Tom Cotton's, I think they add an intellectual grit to this movement that makes it very, very forceful and very, very sustainable. And the Republican Party over the last six or seven years have convinced the American working class that this is your best shot. I mean, if you want to be, uh, if you want to really aspire for a better tomorrow in America as a, as a worker and, and somebody, you know, kind of living the working class life, the average Joe, I, I just think this this movement is going to really captivate um, those sorts of people. Let's do this. Let's take a break, early break, because I'm going to come back and get Buddy Brian uh, the next segment. Buddy is a current member of Florence County Council running for re-election in a Republican primary, and Buddy's kind of shaking his head at some of this America first talk. I mean, I think we all see where we are. Some like it, some don't. It doesn't matter. Sometimes you accept the realities. Back in a minute. 843 We'll get to the calls in just a few moments. Buddy Brand, current member of County Council and a guy running for re-election in this same primary that uh, the candidates on the uh, on the stage last night at the Francis Marion University Performing Arts Center. Um, but, Buddy, I think last night, and we'll get to your issues here, but I think last night was a good night for Florence because it did highlight um, – a, a very nice venue in a town that is perceived somewhat secondary in the 7th Congressional. Everybody thinks the 7th is all about the beach, and it is to some degree, but I think Florence showed well last night. As a member of county council, got, got to make you feel optimistic. Absolutely. It was an outstanding event, outstanding uh, place to have an event, and it showcased our community, and we need all that kind of advertising and community effort we can get okay sure. buddy you, you're you're not running for congress but you run, are running for county council there are issues you guys are trying to deal with um before we go to the issues i want our listeners to to better understand who is buddy brand thank you thank you both first of all thank y'all for last night and what you did it was outstanding you uh, you held back uh, some some crazy type <laughs> there was there, there was some rambunctious <laughs> souls there. yes there were but you, you did a great job it was outstanding um, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, first, I'd just like to let the people of District 8 particularly know who I am if they don't already know, uh, because I've served in this capacity in the city council for 15 years, and I think a lot of them know me, but even if they don't, I'd still like to know, uh, let them know a little bit more about me. First of all, I'm a God-fearing person, period. That is number one in my in my life. Number two is my family. Uh, I have a wife, Janet, 34 years. And she may be as involved in the community as I am. She's involved with uh, helping Florence flourish, uh, all kind of mission work. The, the lady's just uh, 
and church work, I, I, I give her all kind of credit on top of that. She's uh, right. We've raised four kids. I give her the majority of that credit. Uh, I have a son that uh, went to the Citadel. I have a, uh, an, another son that went to uh, Carolina, South Carolina. And then I had a, a daughter that went to uh, Francis Marion and another uh, daughter that is now getting ready to graduate from Clemson. So I mm. think I've served the yeah. South Carolina well as far as economically. You've done good politically <laughs> with getting your kids educated. <laughs> That's exactly you right. You've made all the fan bases happy. <laughs> and two grandchildren that live in, in the community, which is wonderful. And that's kind of where I wanted to, to start. The reason for my running to begin with, okay, back 17 years ago, was I had a doctor come to see me, and he said, buddy, we're losing, we're losing docs in our community because the, the families don't have anything to do here. Well, by golly, that's what's going to stop. And as it, as it became, the city of Florence, over about a period of seven, eight years, we were able to gather enough effort from the governments, whether it be the city, the county, uh, local uh, investors was, was the biggest thing, over $100 million worth of investment there to redo downtown Florence. That started over eight years giving people something to do. I mean, you look back 10 or 15 years, downtown Florence isn't where you wanted to be. Well, it is now, and it's going to get better. So that was kind of the driving force. I didn't want my kids to go off to school and never come back. I wanted them to come home, and I want the other family's kids to come home. I don't want them to go to one of these schools I just mentioned and then leave and raise a family somewhere else. We're right where we need to be, and that's probably one of the biggest things that got me into the uh, – I don't like the word politics because I don't think I am that, but I want to be a helpful community citizen, and that's my, that's my whole goal. As far as um, my values, I'm extremely conservative. I am financially very responsible. I was on the finance committee with the city, and I'm now on the finance committee with the county. And my experience is about 40 years in investment banking. That makes me very conservative on the uh, on the financial side. What I would like to see, well, let me let me stop there just a moment. In in today's morning news, we had a finance committee meeting yesterday about money, and when uh, I another comment about that. When I ran for city council the first time, I did accept some money, maybe about $2,000. Since then, I've never accepted a dime. Every Everything I've ever done, is I've paid for it myself. That puts me, I think, in a, in a great situation and great ability to help the community. Um, we need, in our community, uh, we need jobs. We need really good jobs. We need industrial jobs. And the way to do that is to have Freestanding buildings, ready to go. We got to have that. We got to have job sites, which we do. We just got to have these buildings, and it costs money to do that. We have to have quality infrastructure, which in the city, some of that stuff, those pipes underground are 60 years old or more, clay. They got to go. That's 100 million bucks. I remember we talked about it, and that's got to happen at some point. We've got to make our community, as I said before, a place where families want to raise their kids. To me, Florence is the center. You got Charleston here. You got Asheville here, and you've got Greenville here, and we're and Charlotte. And we're right in the center of all that. You can go there, but you don't have to live in those kind of places, which is nothing wrong with them, but uh, they're expensive, number one, and I don't know that they're the best family places uh, either. Um, but anyway, going back to, to that, I think we all have to be able to work together to accomplish the goals, and we all we have to have a vision. we got to look at one vision, not all these scattered things. And these visions don't take place over one time. It takes a while, just like the teardown of that um, hotel 
which should have happened years ago uh, in downtown, uh, is finally happening. It's going to make downtown a lot, a lot better place. In order to do this and move Florence forward, we've got to have good leaders, but we also have to be responsible. We can't just tax the taxpayers. On top of that, we need to be very mindful of our employees, whether they're city or county. Uh, if you if you noticed in today's uh, paper, uh, we met yesterday, the Finance Committee did on our budget, and we looked at raises for every county employee of about $2,000, and those in the Sheriff's Department, about 7000 a person. That's needed. And everybody goes, why are you paying them more than you're paying the rest of the employees? Well, do you want to get shot at every day? I mean, really? That We need to pay those people, and we need to bring up those pay grades to match other communities. We do this, we rise ourselves above that, and we will not be losing the people that we're losing. And that's important. And we don't want these people that have stayed with us through COVID and everything else. We, we were behind the eight ball, I'm saying the county. The city, I think, when I was there, I think we were in pretty good shape, but the county's kind of been behind the eight ball with this money thing. Well, we're not gonna be behind the eight ball anymore. I'll make sure of that. We're gonna move forward. Buddy, from that perspective, the increase of pay with law enforcement, is that in relation to the increase in crime? I mean, people in Florence have talked a lot about recently a crime problem. Is that is that council trying to address to retain and get better quality law enforcement officers? Absolutely. Ken, I think that's a really good point. People don't realize how much it costs to train and and <laughs> outfit a, a sheriff's deputy it's over seventy five thousand dollars a piece by the time you train them car everything else seventy five thousand dollars a piece but yes that is a big part of what's going on and one thing i'll say that and i'm not liberal but this atlanta mayor i heard him talk and he said we're you know we're not he's being the atlanta city mayor we're not in government to raise a family we're not in the county or the city to raise your family you got to do that on your own but we got it we can stop it the best way we can and to get quality people is the best way to get it stopped okay last question last question and you've covered a lot there Um, i'm sorry no that's fine i mean that's why you're here and that's why we're here so so if someone wants to know more wants to support buddy brand um i see you walk in the neighborhoods i see your signs all over the place um how can they communicate is there a facebook page a website um help me with that we have a brand for florence And if they want to talk to me directly, the best way is at my office, 843-665-7599. And I have never not returned a phone call. And I can vouch for that. He honestly has not. He tried to get in touch with me yesterday twice to see what time to come today. And I was was predisposed with uh, debate activities. But uh, good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you do. Appreciate the time. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Uh, The Facebook page website again. Uh, Brand for for Council. Dot com. Okay, brand for council. Brand for Florence. Okay. I'm sorry. Brand for Florence. Brand for Florence. We'll right. take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Thank you. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843 661 0937 or 1 866 Tell Ken. That's not 1 866 Tell Mike to Tell Ken. We don't do that here on Wake Up Carolina, but somebody right. held on during the break. Let's go there. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Kid, if y'all really want to shake things up, that lady, Barbara Arthur, is the one to do it. Yeah, but you, I mean, I listen to her ad on the radio, and I love the way she talks. But but I want to talk about two other other things. Uh, the first thing, when you search about his directions, look what they've done left, and even the White House press secretary is encouraging that these radicals do to the Supreme Court judges to just trying to have a Democrat vote on abortion. Let the voters decide. But they don't want that. So now they've outed these judges. They've outed where they live. 
and they're encouraging violence against them. And you talk about an insurrection. So whoever we send over there needs to be looking at that old dog. Who are they going to bring it for for the, for, the, for the insurrection against the Supreme Court? Another thing I don't understand, one of my idiot liberal clients was all excited because he had read how we had using our AWACS to help target Russian generals and kill the Russian generals. And we advertised that. Then we also advertised that we helped uh, we helped the Ukrainians sink a Russian ship. Now, are they, all I can tell the question you have to ask yourself is, are, are they that stupid? Or are they intentionally trying to get us into a war with Russia? I mean, if we're actually giving the Ukrainians the information where the Russian general is, and then the Ukrainian turns around and Dago flies the Dago drone over there and kills the Russian general, well, I'm telling you, that's uh, if, if, if they were doing that to us, I believe we'd be pretty pissed off. You know, I'm not a fan of the Russians, never have been a fan of the Russians or the Chinese. They're our enemy. They always have been. But I'm telling you, you know, we need to be, they're, they're doing this on purpose again. They're trying to get us into a damn war with Russia. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. I've, I've said it for the last week. Uh, not as many times as we probably should say it over the airwaves, but it seems to me that behind the scenes, some of the organized forces are slow walking us into a higher level of engagement. Uh, once again, I, I'm, I'm reading some things in the Wall Street Journal. I'm seeing some things. Uh, it seems to me that some of the, once again, the organized neocon uh, interventionist forces within both parties. I mean, it's not Republicans or Democrats. This is kind of a um, a Washington sort of thing, inside the Beltway thing. Um, Leon Panetta uh, came on CNN a couple of weeks ago because you had it teed up. We never played it. But Panetta came on as former CIA director and national security advisor. Um, but right now, he's working for a consulting company whose largest client is Raytheon. And I counted in three minutes and 11 seconds, he said weapons like 32 times. You know, we got to provide weapons. Got to pro- And the point I'm trying to make is CNN has an obligation to me and to you to tell us that this guy is not just a former CIA director, not just a former national security advisor, but he also works for a law firm who is consulting on behalf of Raytheon, who is one of the biggest weapon providers in all of the American military. And it seems to me, and I don't know how this works because I'm not in the club, but it seems to me the club has passed around kind of an internal document, and that internal document says, here's the strategy. Um, they've kind of become a little bit dismissive. Uh, we're not paying as close attention to Ukraine and Russia as we were a couple of weeks ago, so now's the time to heighten involvement, to further engage. Um, J.D. Vance, and this is interesting to me, um, ran against uh, Mandel, and the issue that Vance and the uh, the Trump super PAC well, it wasn't the Trump suit, it was Peter Thiel money. The, 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 the money Thiel spent, about 50 cents of every dollar, and he spent $13.5 million, a lot of money. But about 50% of that was to let Ohioans know that Mandel supported a European-endorsed no-fly zone. And Vance was adamantly opposed to that. They felt that, I think I said this the day after Vance won, they felt that Ohio voters, Republican voters, um, would not be as angry with you as you said, I don't care what happens to the Ukrainian border as they would if you endorsed a European no-fly zone. And obviously, J.D. Vance overperformed to the tune of about... I went back and looked. He won that race by 10 percentage points. I mean, that's a bit... I know he only got 32.2% of the vote, 
but the next nearest challenger was at about 23%. So he won that race in a plurality state by about nine percentage points, close to 10 percentage points. That's a pretty big win when it comes to uh, to Ohio. The Trump endorsement, obviously, uh, put him over the top, and um, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Philip Lowe is with us as he is just about every Friday morning. And thanks for joining us, uh, Representative Lowe. Thank you for having me. So, so I saw you last night um, sitting down with uh, the other dignitaries uh, <laughs> near the front of the stage. But but I want I want to stay here for a second because um, I've had a lot of people ask me, and you try to kind of handicap these things: um, who did the best, who had the worst, you know, who could have done better, who left, um, who, who didn't perform as well. Anyway, um, the dominant force in that room is still Donald Trump. Yes. I mean, I mean, there, there's no question about that. I mean, we can talk about China, we can talk about GDP, we can talk about federal debt, but but everybody in that room wanted to know um, or felt compelled to react or respond when it involved former President Trump. It did. I mean, you started it out with basically, you know, can can Rice survive the one vote he took? Well, other than that, he's had some pretty good time in Congress and. And, and it was evident just by the crowd there that they were still frustrated over that vote. Did he explain it well, Philip, from your perspective? I mean, we're, we're speculating here. We're, we're, you're the world of punditry, whether you want to be or not. But, I mean, did he explain it in a way that you think the voters will buy? I, I don't think he did. I, I think it's impossible to. With six days left and you're going to throw a man out without giving him due process, I, that's not easy to explain. I mean, he said it was basically the Constitution um a, a nice broad answer we all support but i'm not sure that uh it had rung in the crowd when i was watching and, and i like the guy you know I, sure. I had a meet and greet at my house for him the first time he ran so i went i went to that meet and greet at your yeah. house so it you know it, this isn't easy for me you know russell sits in front of me i endorse russell so might as well get that sure, out of the way sure. before we talk about it uh but it it was a fun debate i enjoyed it i giggled and laughed and and <laughs> And, you know, I enjoyed the, the number of times we uh, we talked about having a drinking game. And every time Barbara Arthur said communism, you had to drink. <laughs> We'd all been drunk. Sloshed. We'd have been drunk the first 20 minutes. The, uh, <laughs> we could have got out of there. Somebody, she, I, somebody I like had to carry all of us home. I like her spunk, sure. too. You know, we all do. And that you, you like people to just hurl some stuff out there. You have to question is how much depth is there beyond communism. And I, and I, I think this is a, a two-horse race. I think, you know, at, at Ken fella. Ken, Ken is the only guy that's got a more country voice than you. Easy now, easy now, easy now. Um, yeah, I like the way Ken talks because I can hear him and, and clearly. But but I think he had the zinger of the night. And, uh, and it doesn't change the race, but it is interesting when he said, I'm not mad that Tom Rice didn't endorse me. Trump. I'm mad that he, uh, Trump, yeah, I'm not mad that Trump didn't endorse me. I'm mad that he endorsed Russell. Well, you and I both know that you got to punch up. I mean, if you feel like you're in third place and there's going to be a two-person runoff, you got to punch up. You, you got to make the race about you and whoever you think is going to be in the runoff. That's why I asked the question. If we have a runoff that doesn't include you, who are you going to endorse or support? Endorsement support are kind of one of the same thing. And, um, and, and the only two that answered it was uh, Tom said anybody but Russell, and Russell said anybody but Tom. And, uh, <laughs> but but I, think, I, mean, I think what, what, what Richardson did was what he had to do. And that is to create some sense of belief that this is not a two-man race. This is a three-man race. Well, I would, if I'm guessing, he's in third. But you know, I, I don't know. Barbara might overtake him. You know, she, the people like that spunk that she had too. And 
And it's interesting just watching and listening to the people. Everybody brought their own ensemble. And, you know, they, people were, you could kind of hear a little pockets that was the sure. same pocket every time. So this isn't it, necessarily, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a real vote by the people. It was just who brought the most people to the to the event. And, and, uh, and Barbara has spunk. And, and people respond sure. in, in those sorts of settings to someone who has spunk. I thought Dr. Garrett Barton acquitted himself well. Well, he's a very bright guy, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that he doesn't have the funding and all to get top billing. But he presented himself well. I, I enjoyed listening to him. Very cerebral kind of a mm-hmm. guy, you know. And and the problem is, I told Dave Baker, um, he actually answered the question. You know, if I asked about China, he talked about China. That's right. If I asked about trade, he talked about trade. And I walked up to him after the event. I said, you'll learn to not talk about, you know, the, the issues. The, the moderator's trying to get you to answer the question. Your job is to kind of sort of not answer the question, but talk about the four or five things it is uh, you want to talk about. So, so I want to go down this road, Philip. Two of three. I mean, I've read a lot about this preparing for the debate. Two of three Republicans identify as America Firsters. Um, I said earlier with Buddy Brand in the room, th- th- there's there's still a resistance out there. I mean, th- there's still a an, an element within the Republican Party that refuses to accept that this is going to be the new normal. This is the way forward. This isn't a fifty one forty nine divide. I mean, this is a two to one divide. The party's base has made its mind up which way they want to go, and and it's not just about Trump. I mean, it's trade and China and immigration and all these other sorts of things. Do, do you have to deal with that at all at the state level? I mean, you're aware of this. You're politically astute. You know what's kicking out there. Well, but- it's, it's to throw the bums out, you know, to clean the swamp, do all the different things for for establishment or whatever you want to call people who are in it. You know, ask yourself this. Listen, Trump was president for four years. Is that not establishment now? I mean, you you got to, you got to back up and think. Before you take a mob and hang somebody, think about how they vote. Think about do they represent your values? Don't don't just run people out on a rail just simply because they've been there trying. But you know? but you're a guy that's always been, in my humble opinion, somewhat of an America first or anyway. You, you've always been somewhat of an outlier, even in a leadership position, even having been there for a good while. So here's kind of the follow up: as someone who has been in in Columbia for a period of time, um, you're not having to recreate yourself. You can remain who you are. And 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 the, the America first element within the party um, doesn't consider you to be the, the swamp or it, this, you see where I'm trying to head. I mean, I don't think I don't think America first says I mean, I, I know what you're saying about throw all the bums out and drain the swamp. Sure, that's what Trump says. And that's a sound bite. And everybody kind of, you know, rah rahs when when that is said. But I think there I think Rand Paul in Washington, I think Rand Paul's always been an America firster. I think um, I think there are a lot of others. I've always perceived you as somebody who never fit into the mold of establishment or status quo. Well, you know, they call me gunslinger up there. That was my nickname. And, and it's because, I, you know, I shoot from the hip. I mean, I just tell you how I feel. And, and there's that point at which a leadership will look you in the eye and say, you need to do this, and I don't always do it. You know, it's, it's part of uh, my job, my responsibility is to think on my feet and to represent my people. And, uh, and so I care about what people think, but ultimately, you know, I've got a decision to make and we're in the box a lot where you just can't make everybody happy and, and you just got to go with your gut and what your beliefs are. And I, and I want you to elaborate here for a second. I think it's very interesting. I and mean, I've been not, not in the state house, but I was in Columbia and you know, the, the local level. You've got to work with people who, um, I mean, you got to, you got to kind of bob and weave. I mean, you can't alienate yourself. 
we had a call earlier uh, earlier this week about what one member of the General Assembly did on one particular issue, and and but but I can I think I understood why he did that because he can't live on an island. I mean, you're a member of a of a legislative body, and if you're going to do things for your community and your constituency, the people you're I'm here to represent, you've got to be respectful and sometimes work with people in in other places about things that are their priorities. Governing takes a level of maturity and wisdom and we get there the first time and we're going in with you know the thoughts that we're going to change it all and our one vote is it but you'll realize quickly that if you create yourself into being just the one vote guy you'll never do anything for your people you never can really help you'll never climb in any power and if you don't climb in power you can't really affect government so you get on an island by yourself but you'll find yourself being totally ineffective and you got 170 votes up there. You're one of them. Yeah, well, well said. Okay, what happened this week or what will happen next week that you think our listeners need to be paying attention to in the state house? Well, from a local standpoint, uh, you know, it, it looks like uh, the, well, the, sec- the Secretary of Education, Superintendent of Education said that she was going to combine Timminsville into Florence and force that. So she has that power and ability and on july 1st she's going to do that so we had to get some legislation to draw the map for the new district because timmonsville is going to be coming in and so we have to redivide uh, all the population and draw a district map so we worked on that this week and and uh, it got through the house and i think it had second reading in the senate too so whether we like it or not it's coming and and we have to prepare a map for that so that from a local standpoint, that was a lot to happen in, in a week. And that's in the hands of the superintendent of education. In other words, board representation. I've heard that mentioned in that debate. How will the board representation be allocated? Well, currently, you know, Timmonsville would not have a voice. So you put 6,000 people into Florence District 1, and they've got to have a voice. they got to put them in someone's district. Everybody, of course, has to be represented and needs to be represented july 1st the day that it turns over so we we drew a map that essentially would probably likely have four african-american votes and probably likely five uh white votes and that's just guessed on how who's in the house or i mean who's in the uh the school board uh districts right now um so i think it was a fairly drawn map and and quite honestly timmonsville deserves some recognition rather than one person getting a little teeny piece of Timmonsville, another one getting it and splitting it all up. This gives them a little bit of, of, a, of a vote. So kind of the, the Savannah Grove area along with Timmonsville made up a brand new district. Philip, do we believe that eventually we'll get to more consolidation? I mean, is this the beginning of, I mean, you don't run the Department of Education. I don't run it. But, I mean, just giving an opinion here, are we, are we heading to a place where finance and the economy will will force certain rural school districts to consolidate with other certain rural. I mean, is that something that is inevitable? I mean, I understand the, the local ownership of a school district. I understand Johnsonville wants theirs, and Pamplico wants theirs, and Lake City wants theirs. But but it, it appears to me, it's easy for me to say this because I'm not a member of General Assembly. I'm not superintendent of education. But it seems to me we're heading closer and closer to a place where consolidation will be normalized. It's more difficult. And in the smaller uh, school districts, for them to comply with all the rules and regulations of, of state and federal, even local type governments with with the school board needs. So 
you know, I think it's a trend that, that we're headed towards, but I mean, it's not my role to go out there and force consolidation on people. Uh, you said Johnsonville, they've got one of the best districts in our county, maybe second, maybe first. Might be the best district in our county. It really may be. And so it's not always about size. So Timmonsville kind of got in trouble financially, and uh, and that's what she first came in. But but we know the education level just hadn't been par there either. So Lawrence District 1 uh, is has got a role here to help get those folks up. And listen, I'll represent parts of Timmonsville. Those kids deserve a good education. But I'm not forcing it. You know, sure. Molly's doing that through superintendent of education. Can you hang around another segment? Sure. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Representative Philip Lowe. Uh, 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Day after the debate, want to congratulate once again Rev and his team at Community Broadcasters. Want to congratulate WMBF, Francis Marion University. Uh, Florence in general did well and performed well, showed well. You showed me a picture earlier from your perspective, mm-hmm. kind of overlooking. I mean, it's, the venue was spectacular. Oh, I mean, it really was so impressive. A, a very well-attended event. Um not 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 full. I mean, there were some empty seats in the uppers and the very very back. But um, but a lot of people there, and I think Philip nailed it when he said, you know, all of these candidates bring their their rabid base with them. It may not be but ten or twelve people. It reminds me, and it is two thousand eight when when Ron Paul, Rand Paul's father, ran for president. You'd go to the debate and you'd swear this guy's the front runner. I mean, there's no way he's not going to win this presidential election, and then he gets twelve percent of the vote. But he had a base, and that reminded me a little bit of Barbara Arthur. I mean, I don't want to say she reminds me of Ron Paul. She's a female, he's a male. He was real quirky. But there was this um, ah, this loyalty or connectivity that a certain group of the electorate had with that same candidate. Yeah, she had an entourage, is what I would call it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I've seen them. I remember she signed up the first day. She had an entourage there. I've looked around and said, there's nobody here telling me to sign up. You got six or eight with her. What's going on? But but that can that can create a, a kind of a false sense of who the front runner uh, really is or is not. And I and I'll agree with you. I mean, to me, it appears, and I'm speculating because I've not seen much polling. Um, Kahaley's doing a lot of polling, but he won't share the polling with me because it's uh, in confidence. I mean, somebody's paying him a lot of money to do some of this. I would imagine the chamber at Myrtle Beach has a good bit of polling on this race. Once again, they've not shared any of that with me. But I think you're right. You've got an incumbent, and you've got a challenger who's been endorsed by Donald Trump. I mean, I don't know that you need to go much deeper than that. That's probably where it is. There's going to be a runoff. We're, we're about sure no one's going to get 50% plus one. So there'll be a runoff, and everybody's just vying to be in the runoff. Because yeah. the, the real you know elephant in the room is, does, does Rice have a ceiling? And it, that is below 50 percent and so anybody who's in the runoff has a chance of picking up all those other votes well here, here's the, the the number that matters uh to, to, to just about everybody 66 percent two of every three republican primary voters identifies america first tom rice voted to impeach uh, the lead singer you know the um the godfather of america first and, and you said it earlier can he or can he not get away with that vote um, that's the ceiling you're talking about. If two thirds are America firsters, that means one third aren't. That means 33%. 33% may win you a plurality election in Ohio. Mm-hmm. It ain't going to win you a runoff election in, uh, in, uh, South Carolina. And that was the intent of the question last night. If you, uh, if there's a runoff that doesn't include you, 
who will you be inclined to support? And we didn't get a clear answer there because I'd heard some scuttlebutt through the grapevine that there's some uh, kind of animus between two or three of these candidates. And, um, you know, they'll they'll support Tom before they'll support this other candidate. We shall see how that works out. Feelings get hurt in political campaigns. I want to go back to the Statehouse, if you don't mind, yeah. and, and talk about uh, a couple of things here. Uh, we've had several calls about voting integrity, voter integrity. The bill seems to be stalled in the Senate. You guys are doing everything you can from what I'm gathering in the House to get something done, but it's not being expedited in the Senate. Is that a right reading? Yeah, that's right. But And what we've done to combat that is, is they have uh, sent over several Senate bills, and they went to judiciary, and Jay Jordan and several others in there have put basically our bill regarding election integrity on to all of those. We amended their bill to add that to it. So we're going to send them back six or seven bills, but all of them are going to say, oh, yeah, by the way, and election integrity. So we're pushing the issue, and, and hopefully one of these bills will make through and, and carry the day. But, you know, Democrats are, are fussing a little bit about integrity. I don't understand it because we, we had unanimous decision, Republicans and Democrats, for election integrity bill. So I don't know why the Senate's that hung up on it. Well, what are they hung up something. on in particular, Philip? Is there anything they're just, um, I mean, is there, is there things in your bill that they're striking and, and you know, I don't know, incorporated in their Senate bill? Probably the biggest thing is early voting. Okay. You know, we had absentee voting with like 17 or 18 excuses before. And people were just making up excuses and, and voting early anyway. So Republicans felt like, you know, look, instead of 30 days of this absentee, let's bring it down to two weeks. And, and just let people vote early. Uh, you know, everybody has certain places they need to be on election day or whatever, and let's give them two weeks to vote instead of basically a month. Well, so some of the Democrats are, are fussing because they want a full month of voting. Uh, so this was the compromise. Go at two weeks and let people vote early without having to make up some excuse. And everybody's got a right to vote. We just expanded that from, you know, from one day or 31 days, whichever way you looked at it. When they legalized marijuana in, in California, I remember someone saying, they'll never do that in South Carolina. There's no way in this world they'll legalize marijuana in the good old South. Um, there is a, is it a medicinal marijuana bill that Tom Davis has been talking about, Senator Davis from Buford? I know he's kind of been, he's a libertarian-leaning uh, Republican anyway, so this would be right in his wheelhouse, personal freedoms and liberties. Where is, um, I don't know how you say it, where is marijuana in, in, in relation to the state house and policymakers? Uh, probably in a bunch of gummy bears in some of the pockets already. <laughs> some of the trade seekers. Some of the trade seekers being let known now. So, uh, you know, it, it passed the Senate. It came to the House. It went through the 3M committee, which is a Democrat committee, and they got it to the House floor. And so one guy who's adamantly opposed wrote 1,000 amendments, and he had them sitting in front of his desk. And when we got to the bill, instead of going to the bill – then he put up a procedural motion basically saying that any bill that that generates tax must be generated from the House. It must begin in the House. And it's true. It's a constitutional right. fact. Well, this bill generated in the Senate. And not only did it have 6% sales tax, it had an additional 6% tax. And so then they spelled out where all that money was going to go and, and treatment and all the other things that it would help to fund and he raised that point of order well he won that point of, of order the the speaker you know sustained that motion 
and it just kind of killed it. And so the next day they had one chance, but they just didn't quite have the votes to overrule the speaker, which when I came through, they said, if you ever overrule the speaker, you're done. You're and and so it, they weren't as reverent. They, we have 55 to 50 or something on the votes to overrule the speaker. Uh, but anyway, it, it looks like it's dead. And I mean, it, it may be some way of, of bringing it back. But, um, you know, we our rules in the House are a little tighter than the Senate. They, yeah. they make up stuff sometimes, <laughs> seems yeah. like. I, I, yeah, they do. They absolutely do. Um, you talked about the speaker a second ago. Jay Lucas is no longer the South Carolina State Speaker of the House. Merrill Smith has been installed. Am I right? I mean, is, is that there... happens on the 12th. Okay. So they had a date certain, you know, it. It takes a while to measure the drapes and figure out what pictures you're going to gotcha, put on the gotcha, wall. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so Merrill Smith, Merle Smith from Sumter will, uh, on the 12th of this month, become the official speaker of the House. I think, yeah, I think it's the 12th. Anything different about that? I mean, we all have a certain way we do things. Jay Lucas had a certain way of doing things. Uh, do you expect the House to function or operate uh, any differently under the leadership of Merle Smith? Yeah, I think every speaker's got his own personality uh merle we is loved by all but we call him grumpy so sometimes if you go talk to merle you might get a grumpy answer back but he's really not trying to be mean but but you know that that does kind of limit the number of questions you bring to somebody when they're a little grumpy when you talk back so i think it'll it'll he won't worry as much about pleasing everybody i think he'll worry more about governing his style of governing I don't want you to to let me know things that our listeners shouldn't know. I mean, you guys have to operate in confidence. I'm talking about as a delegation. But I got a uh, text from Mike Rickenbaugh that um that he was uh, going to try to come this morning, couldn't, going to come next uh, Friday morning at 8 o'clock, and he wants to really have a conversation about the magistrates. We've heard uh, – you've talked a little bit about this, but um that there's been a lot of chatter amongst our listeners and, and our, our, uh, our universe and the political universe, for that matter – about crime in our area, the increase of crime, and, and we've kind of settled, whether it's right or wrong, we settled on um, law enforcement doing a job, passing that responsibility off to some of the magistrates, and you got some low bonds and low bails, and I don't know what some of the requirements or stipulations. Jay Jordan was with us last week as a lawyer trying to explain some of that, but as much as you'd like to divulge, uh, what sort of conversation is being had when you know there's that much public concern about the magistrates? Well, you know, the Senate uh, picks the magistrates, and the senators from that area basically pick them, make a recommendation, and the other senators go along with it, and, and they, they basically pick them. Um, and, you know, once they get in, they're, they've got some independence. They're a, they're a judge at that point. Um, very few magistrates are attorneys, and they really don't pay magistrates well enough to attract attorneys to the profession. That may make the profession a little uh, a little more court like that you know that uh, they'd have a a basis and a study of the law and that may be something to improve but you'd have to improve the the money if you're going to get that but you know basically magistrates are are using good common sense and and i think we've had a couple of cases that highlighted the in and out with people of the revolving door of crime and they're getting out, and we just would like to keep them in jail a little. Just you keep them out of my backyard and out of my cars <laughs> and, and the stuff that's going on. And I think that's the frustration of the people. And I, I share that. I've had a couple of break-ins around the house and all, and I, I'm as frustrated as anybody. Uh, I, I would like tougher 
sentencing, uh, and I'd like tougher bonds. And I think we're going to, um, I think Michael join us next uh, next Friday for the first time with the delegation. I hope all three of these guys will eventually come at one time. I think it's important for you guys to hear where, where we are. I mean, these, these are your representatives. These are uh, the folks you elect to go to Columbia and transact the state's business on your on your behalf. And when we have as much conversation about a single issue, I think it becomes important that we engage one another and try to figure out a way to, to resolve this. But But once again, the senators are who appoint the magistrates. And I'm encouraged that Mike wants to come on and kind of explain that, yeah, he's trying to find out more. He's interested in trying to um, to make it better. I didn't say make a change. I said make it better and address some of the uh, some of the ills and problems. And that is something you guys collectively should try to work together on. I don't know if he speaks to them, you know, and, and tries to encourage larger bonds or not. But uh, that's certainly before I picked the next one, I'd be interviewing them and asking them that question, you know, what, how are you going to deal with this revolving crime that we that we have? No question about it. Thank you, Philip. Thank you. Representative Philip Lowe will take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. I hope you folks enjoy the feature. I mean, I think it'll get even better and better as we uh, develop this um, predictability about our delegation coming on Friday mornings and kind of um, opening the phone lines and allowing you to address whatever concern you may have whatever issue you want to raise. Um, I'm still trying to get to the bottom of the situation with the magistrates or what I can disclose about that situation. I can say this, the delegation is well aware that we've got a problem. I mean, I can assure you of that. Now, I'm not one to say what they're going to do. I have no idea uh, how to correct the problem, uh, but the delegation is well aware that we have a problem. And Mike Rickenbaugh and I corresponded a couple of times this week about coming on the show, not this Friday, but next. Mike's still drinking out of a fire hose, trying to get his bearings about him. But um, but he is hard at work uh, trying to understand, you know, how did we get here? Uh, let's not make a rash and irrational decision on addressing whatever the problem may or may not be. But everybody in the delegation knows we have a problem. I mean, I don't think they'd mind me going on the record saying, we understand that we're having too low a bond sets and there are too many people, kind of the revolving door, as Philip said, you know, a law enforcement apprehends a criminal. They put them in jail or charge them with a crime, and that person gets out. Now, once again, everybody's entitled due process. What was the argument last night? I think the best argument to make about impeaching Trump or not is the argument of due process. But, but stick with me for a second. I want to be smart guy for a minute. You know what impeachment is not? It's not a criminal proceeding. It's political. It's right? political. It's very political. I mean, it's all political. Impeachments are political. I mean, it's political punishment. And and when you think about due process, and I've heard everybody argue that I think Russell said last night, everybody deserves due process, even the president. They do in matters relating to criminal charges. I'm not sure they do when it comes to impeachment. Now, I think it was the wrong vote. I think it was a terrible vote. I don't think Trump for a second incited an insurrection. I think he peddled fantasy. I mean, I think some of the things he said were um, things that he probably didn't need to say. But I just don't believe when you look at the articles of impeachment, it's insurrection. And I don't think Trump incited an insurrection. Um, I think he had a hand in creating a protest that went bad. But I mean, there are a lot of protests that go bad. But but the argument of due process, uh, if if I'm Rice or somebody that supports Rice, I would say, Look, if he were being charged with a crime, I certainly would have given him due process. 
but he's not impeachment is not a criminal offense. It is a political matter. It's a political punishment is what it is. Now, I think the best argument to make is, was Tom's, um, was Tom's motivation to make sure Trump doesn't run again? That's the political issue here to me. We know why the Democrats impeached, impeached Trump to so damage him. I mean, who in the world would ever vote for a twice impeached former president? A lot of people. I can answer that for you. A lot (laughs) of people would. Um, I'll even say it this way on Friday. A ass of people. And that's more than a lot. Uh, That's about as many as you can get. No question about it. But but, but the the Democrats were impeaching Trump in in hopes of just, just, you know, purging him from the system. He's done. He's gone. We'll never have to deal with, with that guy. And that MAGA crowd, Biden's words, not mine, that MAGA crowd ever again. And I think you're great make, making just the most, uh, the, the greatest miscalculation in recent time is those in the Republican Party. And I'm talking about the Carl Rose of the world, who J.D. Vance fondly referred to as a slime ball. Um, that's kind of where the Republicans are. I mean, it really is. Uh, J.D. Vance takes no prisoners. I mean, he referred to, to Carl Rove as a slime ball, said he's the slime ball that got rich shipping jobs overseas and sending other people's kids to foreign lands to fight presidential wars. Wow. I mean, that's about as aggressive as it gets in intra-party fighting. But can Rice get away with the vote? I mean, we can have another debate tonight. We can have one tomorrow, Sunday. Well, race Sunday, not not a debate on race day. Um, Mother's Day. Mother's Day second. Race day's first. Mother's Day would be um, second. See, my wife said, why would they have a race on Mother's Day? I said, why would y'all have Mother's Day on a race? <laughs> I mean, that's the better question. Why would you schedule Mother's Day on the day you know NASCAR's holding an event? <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Angela in Pamplico. Hello, Angela. Hey. So I was at the debate last night. Um it was, I, I loved it. It was my very first political event. Um, but I, I'm sad to know that that Dr. Barton and Barbara Arthur are not getting the, the recognition that they deserve, I guess. Um, because from what I gathered afterwards, standing around talking to everybody um, in the in the lobby, Barbara Arthur really showed up and showed out last night, and she won a lot of people over, including myself. I was not a fan of hers before last night at all. Um, but, you know, the, the people who have been in, in politics um, for so long, you know, the everyday Americans that have followed politics, put it that way, um, seem to, yes, want a politician in office for whatever reason. I don't understand it. But um, the everyday American like myself who are just getting into politics agree that, number one, it's like she said, if we don't work on the, the border and if we don't work on keeping our freedoms, the rest of it, who cares? Yeah. I mean, really. She cares? she got her point across loud and clear. Thank you, Angela. We got to yeah. take a break. Don't interrupt or don't want to cut you off, but we got a hard break. Top of the hour. Back in a minute.
Last hour of the week, race in Darlington this Sunday. Very appropriate, Rev. You didn't you even go. refer to me. It's Springsteen Friday. Just got to take it upon yourself well, to I, play I know Darlington the, County. I know the rules. I know that Springsteen plays on Friday per host privilege, and uh, and that's the appropriate song. That's the one and only one we can play on race weekend, right? Our paws each own one of the World Trade Centers. For a kiss and a smile, I'll give mine all to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many young men have exaggerated their standing in life? Think about it now. How many, how many young men uh, have lied uh, about their standing or status or, you know, to try and impress? I just think it's kind of an interesting line. Our paws each own one of the World Trade Centers. For kissing a smile, I'll give mine all to you. Uh, I mean, I've never done that, but I've heard mm-hmm. stories about uh, in some of those forbidden places where Baptists don't go especially Baptists from small southern towns, uh, don't go. Uh, the only words I understood uh, on that song were sha-la, la-la, la-la-la-la. You certainly understood driving into Darlington oh. County. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, but it was not the race. <laughs> but it is just Darlington County. I mean, he's actually talking about our neighbor uh, to the west, Darlington, or actually kind of, yeah, what's to the west? Uh, uh, kind of northwest, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Let me get my geography yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be kind of northwest um, so. Darlington County. Yep. So it's the same Darlington County. But he's not singing about about the race. Uh, this is an interesting story to me, and I think about the debate last night and Trump being the elephant in the room. And you think about the way Barbara Arthur is trying to play herself as a Trump candidate, Garrett Barton, in in his more uh, a more cerebral way, is trying to portray himself as a Trump candidate. Uh, Russell Fry has been endorsed by Trump. Tom Rice impeached Trump, but I'm not anti-America first. Um, you know, Ken Richardson, I'm more Trump than anybody. I'm um, listen to me talk. I'll say anything. I mean, everybody's kind of playing that uh, that angle of you know gaining favor with the Trump uh, order. But I, but I read this story. It is it's very interesting to me. It's an article in Rolling Stone, and um, I think the Wall Street Journal has this article as well. But um, the New York Times reported late yesterday afternoon that Donald Trump told Mark Esper. Um, yeah, Mark Esper was the. Um, the former defense secretary, remember, Trump had him in and out of there. I mean, they wouldn't do what he wanted to, and he'd get rid of one and, and bring another one in. But um, but Esper wrote a book. It's actually a memoir, uh, A Sacred Truth, or Sacred Oath. That's the name of A Sacred Oath. Now, because, see, if you work for Trump, you've got to include the word virtue or sacred in the book title to, to show that I was above the fray. I mean, I would never do anything that Trump suggested. So, so you know, A Sacred Oath. Uh a, a, a virtuous existence. All of these books that came out of the Trump administration is basically Mark Esper saying, hey, don't forget to invite me to these uh, supper clubs and these cocktail parties. <laughs> I didn't do what Trump said do. In fact, I took a sacred oath, and that oath um, uh, objected to me serving at the pleasure of President Trump in a, man, in a manner and fashion of which I found um, not so sacred, not so virtuous, not so honorable. So in the book, a sacred, or in the memoir, Sacred Oath, um, Mark Esper, former defense secretary, says that Donald Trump suggested, have you ever seen the story, suggested to him twice in the summer of 2020, I mean, I laugh when I read it, that the United States shoot missiles into the, Mexico the to destroy the drug labs of the cartel. Yep. And I'm thinking, I mean, this is a scathing report from the New York Times. And, and I'm thinking while I'm reading it, yeah, but that makes sense. I mean, if they can't control the cartels, if, if the Mexican government has basically sold themselves to the Mexican drug cartels, why not send a couple of missiles 
I mean, they're pretty precise. We don't have Scud missiles. I mean, we've got tomahawks and javelins. I mean, we've got things that hit where they're aimed. Remember the Scud missile? I mean, it, it was like it was like a John Rocker. I mean, it was a thousand miles an hour. You shouldn't have any idea where it's going. Uh, but the javelins and the and and the Patriot missile of that day. I mean, we've got such advanced technology in our military armament now. I mean, if we send a, a missile. Um, and Trump even said, and I just laugh when I read this because I can see him right now. Um, he said we can do it secretly and the operation could be conducted quietly um, and the U.S. could deny it ever, <laughs> it ever had anything to do with it. And I'm still going like, yeah, that makes perfect <laughs> sense to me. Let's send some javelin missiles. Let's destroy the, um, the drug-making facilities of the drug cartels in Mexico. And let's say we don't know anything about it. We don't have any idea what happened. Well, I mean, hey, there are videos of javelin missiles blown up. Uh, there, there are dead drug dealers, and the cartel's um, business model is being dramatically interrupted and impeded. And you know, Trump could say, "I, I don't know." I mean, may, maybe the the javelins we sold to um, Australia, <laughs> you know, um, maybe the ones we sold to New Zealand. I don't have any idea how this happened. I love that. I mean, I love that the president's willing to put that on the table. I'm not saying it, it's it's a correct foreign policy. Please understand. I mean, I, I'm making, I'm being more flippant than it probably should be about a matter of national security. But but you know, it's pretty obvious this administration has no interest in securing the border. We don't know who's coming across. Um, we don't know how much drugs are coming with them. Uh, we know the majority of fentanyl, you know, makes its way into Mexico, makes its way into the United uh, States. So, so Mark Esper believes that he's doing Trump a great disservice, and and he's further disparaging his credibility and his um his sacredness and his virtue. Uh, and I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, are going. I don't know that that's conventionally the way you need to do it, but I'm also not as opposed to that as um that would be an interesting question uh, to our audience. Um, Mark Esper in his book that the New York Times reported on believes that he's absolutely um, j- just ripping the hide off of Donald Trump. You know, he's further uh, he's further insulting his legacy. And I think a lot of people are going, okay, that's normally not the way we do it. And I would, I would rather, you know, Mexico clean up its border and Mexico clean up its act and Mexico refuse to sell its government to the drug cartels. But if you know, it's pretty obvious they're not, I mean, it's pretty obvious the cartels, I mean, they, they, they dominate Mexico because of fear. And, uh, you know, I mean, they're a bunch of just, uh, they're, they're terrorists. I mean, they really and truly are. It's a cartel. I mean, it's a, it's a terrorist cartel that will, um, the, the, the lack of respect for human dignity and human life. Um, so if, if Mexico can't take care of that themselves and we are being punished as Americans by the, uh, the flow of drugs, and the, the flow of drug traffickers and just bad actors, bad actors bringing bad products into our into our country. Why not launch a few javelins? I mean, if we can locate, and I'm sure we can. I mean, if we can locate where these labs are or where these distribution facilities are, just send a few javelins, blow them to smithereens, kill up some drug dealers, and deny you do anything about it. Eight four three six six one. That'll address the problem. Well, I mean, I'm just saying that we're. You know, in the all-world order, that would have been so inappropriate. I mean, it would have been a disqualifier. I mean, if somebody were running for president 
And we found out that in their first um, in their first term in office, they had encouraged the defense secretary to bomb some of the drug making facilities in Mexico and deny they ever knew anything about it. There's no way. I mean, that's that's you're done because we expected something else out of our political leadership. And I think now people have warmed to the idea of someone like Trump doing something like that. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Steve in Florence. Hello, Steve. Good morning, guys. I've taken a step further. I would actually install a few military bases on the Mexican side of the border right there. And, you know, we have satellites that can read the time off your wristwatch. I'm sure we can find those places and blow them up. I'm not, and I would even deny it. I'd get up on stage and tell everybody what I did. No apologies, nothing. How many people are in this country right now that are probably plotting a devastating event right now that has crossed that border? It's scary if you think about it. I'll take that off the air. No doubt about it. Here's the quote. You ready? Shoot missiles into Mexico to destroy the drug labs. Do it quietly. No one would know it was us. We could simply deny as if we had nothing to do with it. I mean, I'm laughing, but I'm, I'm also simultaneously saying, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what would be more effective in disrupting the flow of drugs across our southern border? I mean, do, you, do we really believe the Mexican government is serious? about stopping the flow of narcotics into our and, country. And I would consider it an issue of national security. You know, it's kind of interesting, uh, the way Steve said it, I wouldn't deny it. Well, I think Trump's denial would be based on some sort of protocols or, I mean, th- th- there's, even he had to obey some sort of um, of code of conduct. Uh, I think the presidency, the, the presidency is uniquely different than a radio show host or Steve or, or somebody like that. But yeah, um, <laughs> he also says, or the Times is reporting, I mean, I'd say this is a hilarious story. Um, he, the Times is also reporting that Trump had to be talked out of invading Mexico twice. Um, now they call it what, a harebrained scheme uh, to cut off the flow of drugs. I think what Trump is basically doing is being real. Um, he also suggests he's shooting migrants trying to make their way into the United States from the Mexican border. Um, This is Axios reporting. This book may be worth reading. A Sacred Oath. And here's what I'm going to predict. You ready? Mm -hmm. I think the intent of the book is going to be just the opposite. I think when, when Mark Esper goes down the road of explaining what Trump wanted to do about the flow of narcotics, I think most Americans are going to say, whatever it takes. I mean, whatever you've got to do to stop these yeah, nothing people from has illegally. So far, far, yeah, it's just getting worse. From, from, I mean, stop people from coming into this country illegally and stop the, the, just the absolute free flow of narcotics into this nation that has destroyed so many American lives and affected so many American families that anything is fair game. So that's the point I'm trying to make. Esper and the New York Times believe they're doing Trump a great disservice. You know, they're reporting on how harebrained he was and out of control he was and undisciplined he was. And I think a lot of Americans hear this story and go, I don't know that that's the way it needs to be done, but that might be the only way it could be done. 843-661-0937. Back to the phone. Barry and Sherrall. Hi, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, uh, Ken, that's, uh, I think it makes uh, Trump look better. Um, like you just said, um, we need to protect the border. Uh, we can send troops to Colombia, not the city, but 
the country and uh, do what we do down there, but we can't do it in Mexico where all the trade comes through, all the drugs come through, all the fentanyl that's killing all these young kids um, by one dose. So, But we can send $33 billion to Ukraine to help them defend their country, which is mind-boggling to me, but we can't defend our southern border. It's just crazy, Ken. Uh, but, I, hey, I'm going to um, piggyback off of what everybody's been saying. The two candidates from the PD are, are, are looking good, um, especially Chesterfield County, Darlington County. I, I don't see any signs for anybody else. So I know Horry County is the big, you know, big play here, but as far as the PD, Darlington, Chesterfield, Marlboro, that's what you're starting to see. Um, so we'll see. It'll be interesting to see who wins that uh, that race. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it, my man. Uh, I'll get to that in just a second. I want to read this last, this last quote. This is, I mean, this is hilarious. I asked Rev to come over and look at it and make sure I didn't read it wrong. So Black Lives Matter is protesting outside of the White House in the summer of 2020. Remember some of the protests they had? Got real violent. Um, Trump, Trump asked Esper, or according to Esper, all this is rumor. I don't know if he said these things or not. Um, but but Trump said what <laughs> they were looting and you know robbing the stores. Um, can't you just shoot them? Just shoot him in the leg or something. I'm not talking about killing anybody. Just shoot him in the leg or something. And I think a lot of us are going, yeah. I mean, you know, don't want to shoot and kill anybody, but shoot him in the leg. I mean, that that person carrying that flat screen they didn't pay for, shoot him in the uh, in the quad muscle. Guess what happens? They probably drop the flat screen. They probably um, that that's their looting for today. That's their rioting. Uh, their rioting and looting is over uh, that day. So so. Guys, the point I'm trying to make is, and you know the point. I mean, you guys are plenty smart. You know where I'm headed here. These things that Washington perceives to be so outlandish, and the New York Times categorizes as just the the, the evident example of undisciplined, uh, incoherent leadership, a madman in charge. I think it's more crazy to allow that much narcotics to make its way across our southern border without building a damn wall without securing the border in some way, shape, or form. The the, the madman, the incompetent madman, um, just stands idly by and waits and hopes and prays that something good is going to happen. Um, somebody like Trump says, we've got a major problem on our southern border. It's not just the number of people illegally entering the country. We don't have any idea what they're, what they're bringing with us. So, so the most dangerous part of this invasion, and that's what it is, guys, I mean, watch the news every night. It's an invasion of our nation on our southern border. And, and Trump is basically saying, I'm not sure we can stop the flow of people. I mean, even if we build a wall, there's still going to be ways people get in to the nation. But we got to stop the drugs. You know, the, the people, uh, and, and in all honesty, Rev, and I, you, you, there are some people coming here to pursue a better way of life. There are some people sure. here honestly and truly seeking asylum. We have orderly ways of which to um, manage the affairs of those seeking asylum and then uh, some sort of political persecution. But that's not the case here. I mean, there are people taking advantage uh, of our nation's laws and liberties and freedoms that, that Americans fought to preserve. And once again, I believe as passionately in the Statue of Liberty as anybody. I believe we are Amer- Excuse me, we are the world's best shot to get it right. And I think we should welcome and embrace those who want to come here, assimilate, be productive members of the economy, add value to the American experience and experiment. But that ain't what's happening on the southern border. Uh, we've got child trafficking. 
We've got sex trafficking. We've got drugs flowing across that border in, I think, in quantities that you and I can't even fathom nor imagine. So when Trump says to Mark Esper, let's bomb some of these drug manufacturing and drug distribution centers, I think that's a very reasonable and practical position to hold. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Donald Trump's not from Queens. Donald Trump's from Pamplico. <laughs> oh, really? I'm as sure of that as I've ever been in my life. I read some of the articles in the New York Times. This cat's not from Queens. There is no way he's from Queens. He's a Southerner. He may not know it, and he's got this fake accent, and I know he's got his jet and supermodel. This guy is a Southerner. He just doesn't know it. I think he grew up uh, on that dirt road off of Seven Mile Road. <laughs> Uh, anyway, 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's, he says, let's bomb the cartels and deny it. Not tell anybody, do it, and then, and then deny it. You know, I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine that? I mean, and I'll, I'll tell you, a third of the country would have no problem with it. Now, now, one third would go, probably the right thing to do, but shouldn't have done it that way. Because they've got social standings and status, you know, and they, they, they can't say things like that. I mean, I would be 1,000% for it. I mean, I don't have any problem at all. Bomb the drug cartel manufacturing and distribution centers with um, American military armaments. Don't tell anybody you're doing it. And and when the javelin missiles reveal that it is American uh, weaponry, just say, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we sold some of these things to Switzerland. We sold some of these things to, uh, it could have been the, 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 the Jews in Israel. You, you know how they always protected themselves. Maybe, maybe, you know, I, I just think that is so crazy, but so normal in, in a lot of our lives. Take a, excuse me, let's go to the phone. Here is uh, Robin in Florence. Hello, Robin. Hey, good morning. How you doing, Ken? Hey, hey, how are you? Uh, I, I'll tell you how you can slow down any legal immigration. All you got to do is take some of those 12-foot fancy alligators and put them in that Rio Grande River, and I guarantee you that slow down the flow of traffic through there. Why aren't there alligators in there now? Should, should there be alligators in, in the Rio? I mean, that, that's where the majority of crossing is in the Rio Grande, right? Yes, sir. That, okay. They put them in there. That'd slow it down. That would. No, it would certainly slow it down. Or it would um, uh, it made the alligators happy. I would imagine if it didn't slow the travel down, it'd certainly make the uh, the alligators happy. Appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Um, now we're now we see we, we I knew we would um we would devolve into good old boy isms. You know, a little creativity. Well, I mean, the, the good old boys have always had a plan on how to secure the border. They've just been a little bit um nervous about, you know, authoring the plan or, or, or owning the plan. And now Trump says something that he says, and everybody will say, well, what they should have done was, um, I mean, I've heard people say, run, run current through the water, you know, build, build an electric fence, have snipers sitting on, uh, we've got to do something. I mean, I, you know, I'm laughing and, I think and that's I'm joking kind of around, but we've got to do something. Nothing we're doing is working. It's getting worse. Well, and I, and I think what Trump has done is, uh, and what, what, he, what he's t- spoken about, and obviously you don't know if Esper's telling the truth or not, or if he's em- embellishing some of the conversations they had. But what Trump is saying is, I'm not playing defense. I'm going to play a little offense. I mean, if they, you know, if some of these drug runners are making their way into our nation, destroying lives and, and uh, just killing people. I mean, how many people have died on, on fentanyl and, and you know, so, some other sort of addiction, heroin? Uh, it all comes at, or not all, but the majority of it makes its way into the country on our southern border, and Trump says, you know, let's go on the attack. I mean, let's not wait and try to hope we catch, you know, 5% of the drug runners or 10% of the drug runners. Let's go to them. 
I mean, let's take the fight to them. What what have a lot of the neocons said? I mean, think about this. The neocons would oppose this, but what are they always saying? I'd rather fight them there than here. So why not fight the drug cartels, you know, where they manufacture and where they uh, distribute? Now, now, the manufacturing, the majority of it, from what I understand, is in Colombia and Nicaragua and some of these other, but it still makes its way through. Uh, and I would imagine it's probably a very intricate and sophisticated supply chain. I mean, some of these guys, I mean, you've seen the submarines. I mean, these people, when, when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart, a lot of the drug lords bought some of the excess uh, sup- surplus military fighting equipment. Um, there's a couple of movies out about it. I know Superman doesn't fly, and Hollywood obviously takes creative liberties. But there's this one movie where the, the drug lords from Mexico and you know uh, South America are visiting Russia, and the guy says, do you want a helicopter with missiles or without? Because they're there looking at some of the um, submarines and the, the fighter jets, and I mean, they've got so much cash, it's unbelievable. And it's kind of the black market of military warfare. But yeah, he says, do you want this helicopter with missiles or without? Wow. Let's go to the phone. Here is David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Hey, uh, I guess Trump, he was born in the back of a Greyhound bus rolling down Highway 51. So that would be Pamphlico, right? And why not uh, Piranhas? But Hey, I, last night, man, I'm going to give you guys kudos. That was great production. It was a good show, Ken. I, I saw you, man, uh, thinking about ZZ Top. He was a sharp-dressed man. And when these people started a little ruckus there, I said, oh, Lord, this this man, this ain't Candy Crowley or Chris Wallace. This man might turn from the moderator into the bouncer right quick, and they're going to see the ex-linebacker come back. Um uh, uh, I was going to ask you, what is the capacity of that auditorium there? I think it's around 800, 850-ish, somewhere thereabout. Okay. Well, here would have been a great question. Uh, without Donald Trump, any of you candidates, you think you could get an audience this size? Uh, so he is, whatever you want to call it, uh, the 800-pound gorilla. And guess where he's going to be today? I guess you know this, Ken. He's going to be in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I think about Pennsylvania, you're thinking about Darlington County, whatever. How about the streets of Philadelphia? And here's a town I was on the other day. Uh, this this is plus 64 Democrat. Uh, this is a town that don't go on. It, you got 470,000 votes plus Democrats starting there. And when you get to the suburbs of Philadelphia, and we're talking about Bucks County, Montgomery County, Delaware County, you got an extra 240,000. So as a Republican, you're starting out about 710,000 under the bus, so to speak. We're talking about bus earlier, but I mean, here's the thing you got to find out. You got to find a candidate who can win. Let's take all this stuff out. One of those five people last night is going to win. Pennsylvania, we don't know who's going to win. So you got to find somebody that's going to track who's going to win. And you have to look at the, the, the Dr. Oz. I, you know, he, he may be a path there. Uh, the other gentleman, what is it, the, the one that worked for Bush? McCormick, David but McCormick. The main thing, David McCormick, okay, you brought it with Bridgewater, like a bridge over Trevor Water, whatever. He, he, that, uh, he's an establishment guy, but you got to find a path to win. Because this is a seat that you got to hold. This is not one of these seats like Georgia you want to take over. This seat you got to hold. 
So, and they're going to run out this kind of lamb. He's going to be the same thing as Ohio. He's going to run as a moderate. It's going to be Joe who and all this kind of stuff. He's going to run as a moderate, but here's what I'm going to leave you at, man. Y'all enjoy the race. Enjoy your mother's day, but keep your focus on Pennsylvania tonight. Y'all have a good weekend. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Yeah. Trump's in Pennsylvania tonight on behalf of Dr. Oz. And he's got a kind of a weird way of thinking here. You know why Trump's endorsed Dr. Oz? Well, I mean, he's bought into some of this America first, but he says the guy stayed on television and popular for 18 years. I mean, a guy that is on television for 18 years, keeps ratings up, is going to be a formidable force in uh, kind of because politics has morphed into a theatric production, but it really is. Um, now that we're guilty of this, but we've kind of turned politicians into stars. Uh, you know, there, there's a little bit of um, star quality to a lot of the more popular politicians in America today. Uh, while David was talking, I pulled the poll up on real clear politics. The most recent poll, see, the election is May 17th. So it's a week from this coming Tuesday. Um, so we're close. I mean, the, the election in South Carolina is June 14, I think. So we've still got uh, January, uh, June. Yeah, yeah we still got a, over a month before we get there. But um, it's only a week away, roughly a week from now until uh, Republican primary voters in Pennsylvania choose uh, their nominee in their party for the Senate seat. And, um, and Oz is at 18. Wow. Uh, McCormick's at 16. So that's within the margin of error. Barnett's at 12, um, Sands at 5. So it's really a two-horse race. Um, the Goldman guy, the, the establishment guy in McCormick, and Dr. Oz. This was a layup for McCormick. I mean, this was inevitable until Oz gets in. And when Oz gets in, it was a bit of a novelty. Oz is probably as close as Trump to getting in and changing a race fundamentally because he's somewhat of a star. Donald Trump was a reality TV star. Uh, everybody knew his name. We never imagined, well, a lot of us didn't imagine that um, that it would take off like it did. But um, but Oz has been very similar in that way. Now, he's not as crass as Trump is. He's a um, a cardiothoracic surgeon. He's a Harvard educated. Well, Trump's UPenn educated. So um, I think Trump went to Wharton School of Business or Wharton School of Finance. So he's, he's of the right pedigree to be a Republican. But they had this Pennsylvania race set. I mean, McCormick was the guy. Uh, Went to West Point, got a doctorate from Princeton, won the gold, um, won the, the the bronze star, I think, in the Gulf War, uh, worked at Goldman, worked in the Trump administration, works at um, uh, Bridgewater, uh, just a high, a high rate, you know, what about a highfalutin financier, his wife, very involved in the Republican Party, um, the, the elite establishment of the Republican Party, very much embraced this guy. So, so here's what I'll say. Someone texted me a second ago, a very interesting question. Do you believe Tom Rice's chances are greater or less than 50% of getting reelected? I think they're less than 50%. I don't think they're substantially less than 50%, but I still think they're less than 50%. If Oz wins in Pennsylvania a week from Tuesday, that, that, that's, that's the double whammy. I mean, that's the J.D. Vance, Ohio, and the Oz, Pennsylvania. If it works in Ohio with Republican voters, if it works in Pennsylvania with Republican voters, then why wouldn't it work in the 7th Congressional District of South Carolina with Republican voters? I don't know how you escape that reality. Now, once again, I've seen no data. I've seen no polling. I've heard about some polling. I've heard about some analytics. I know there's been... Uh, some of that done, I'm not privileged to any of that. But but I would argue that J.D. Vance winning Ohio was not a good day for Tom Rice. 
Dr. Oz winning Pennsylvania is a bad day for Tom Rice because those aren't antiseptic events. Those aren't kind of one-offs. They're not single. Uh, There's something going on out there if it happens in Ohio, if it happens in Pennsylvania. You got to believe. You got to believe it's going to happen in the 7th Congressional District. We shall see. Now, Now, here's another point. We got a month, we got about six weeks before we have the election here in the 7th Congressional District. Have we seen the last of Trump? That, that would be an interesting question to me. I mean, if I'm Fry and I've got the endorsement and I've got data that shows me in a good place but not a great place, uh, or do you, I'll tell you what I would probably, here's what I may suspect. You ready? I suspect that some of the data shows it's a runoff between Fry and Trump. I suspect that if that remains the same, Trump comes after the primary and before the runoff. Does that make sense? I mean, sure. I, yeah, if, if that's the way, I don't have any idea where we are now. I mean, Richardson's probably got some data. Because Trump's goal is still to, to beat, beat Tom Rice. Right. Correct. Um, and, and, if, and, if, and if the data shows that it's a two-horse race and it's Rice, the Trump-endorsed candidate, and, excuse me, uh, Fry, the Trump-endorsed candidate, and Rice, the incumbent, you know, Trump pays another visit after the primary, before the runoff. Now, Ken Richardson has something to say about that. Barbara Arthur has something to say about that. Dr. Garrett Barton has something to say about that. I'm just playing out one of these hypotheticals that we're not bound to at all. Let's go to the phone. Here is Cocky Mike. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jeff. I'm so disappointed in y'all this morning. We spent a whole four hours talking about boring politics on Friday when there was a space launch this morning that you could see from the South Carolina coast. God, what's wrong with you people? Um, I, didn't, I didn't even realize there was a SpaceX. Yeah, Mike sent me a picture a second ago, early this morning. He actually is in Charleston. and had a, I mean, it's it's a very vivid picture oh. of it. I mean, you can actually see it with clarity. Sorry, I missed that. Oh, man, it was so cool. It's on my Facebook, Mike Britt's Facebook page uh, video, and, and I was kind of worried. I, I, I didn't know if you could see it from Charleston, what angle to look at at all. And, and it was about two and a half minutes after launch, because there I am standing out there on Montague Avenue at 5.45 in the morning, staring up at the sky. And then all of a sudden, at about 2.20, T plus 2.20 or so, boom, it just, just vivid as you want to see. It's really interesting. Anybody's down at the beach or coastal areas, they got to see it too. But um, golly, there was something else I was going to say, and I, I forgot that I was something up about the rocket. Well, anyway, um. Race weekend, gentlemen. Steve, <laughs> uh, I don't forgot what I was going to talk about. The race <laughs> well, that's race weekend. Anyway. Yeah. That's all you have to say. Anyway, I, I got my little space geek working this morning, and I, I, I've lost my little my concentration. So, look, you guys have a great weekend. Thank we'll you, Mike. I appreciate that. And I do want to encourage people. I heard you out in the uh, in the hallway a second ago asking about race tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about going to the race. I would encourage those. Uh, it's late in the afternoon. I mean, if you celebrate Mother's Day early, then maybe mom will let you go to the race. Um, I just have to get up so John Brown early on Monday morning. Uh, and I've told Rev, I got you. Don't worry about it. If you go get drunk and, and tear things <laughs> up and fight, I mean, just don't get incarcerated because that, that'll make you not be here Monday morning. But I, I'll, I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll call you then, too. You, you carried me last night with, with a heavy lifting of production. Oh, listen to you. I owe you one. So, right. so if you want to go out and have a big time at the racetrack and, drink too much whatever it is you guys do with the, the race and by the way last night was a team effort a lot of people and a lot of planning went into that. yeah but you guys did the heavy lifting i mean i just tried to play you know cat herder 
so to speak, and keep everybody <laughs> pointing in the same direction. Uh, you, you, you had to, you did a good job because you had to deal with some rowdies there. Well, I mean, the, and, the one, and I, look, I tried to clean that up the best I knew how. Um, if you're going to yell out traitor, or are you going to yell out a sentence during the middle of a debate? File and run for office. I mean, it's a free country. Pay your money, file as a candidate, and then you get a chance to call someone a traitor. But I just think that's we can do better than that. The, the, the applause of a candidate, the support of a candidate, I think is appropriate. In a perfect world, we'd have a very quiet environment and we wouldn't have commercials. I don't live in a perfect world. You don't live in a perfect world. We're a commercial enterprise. We've got to pay some bills. So commercials are going to have to take place. But the And the cheering is fine. I mean, I think that's fine. Once again, I would rather it not be the case, but I get it. But, but the jeering and the pot shotting and the calling of names, that's just inappropriate as far as I'm concerned. And I tried to shut that down to begin with. I think I said we got some law enforcement officers <laughs> you did. that'll take care of it. Take <laughs> a break. Put up with yeah, it. Take a break. Back in a minute. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Almost made our Friday. 843-661-0937. The number. Let's go to the phone. Uh, about 30 seconds to squeeze in Pat from Florence. Hello, Pat. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Good morning. Uh, very good job last night, I thought. I uh, appreciate it very much. It was very interesting. Um, uh, quickly, my takeaways was I thought the doctor uh, was the calmest of all. He did the least amount of bashing. Uh, seemed like a good man. Um, Mr. Richardson thinks it's going to be between him and uh, Fry. He might have a little surprise there. But one thing that they all agreed to that I really uh, – my best takeaway was they're going to take care of the seniors. I'm a senior. I appreciate that very much. Uh, thank you. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Pat. Appreciate that. The question I try to get at is we're going to have to fundamentally address Medicare and Social Security. Let's do it now. I mean, honor the promises we made to the seniors, no doubt about it. But people under the age of 50, it's going to be a different world. Take a break. Back with our Pepsi of Florence trivia. 